And we're recording. Oh my god, we're back. We're back, and uh, as uh, yeah, mm-hmm. How, how's everyone doing? Mm-hmm. Hope you're doing well. Rhetorical questions. Yeah, <laughs> we can pretend, right? Yep. Kevin says we're our, as always. He's fighting off a hangover right now, but even though it's two thirty, it's already two thirty in the afternoon. Yeah, he's also not at our location of recording currently, so we're just assuming he's hungover somewhere. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the text last night we got from him are a clear indicator that he's definitely hungover today. Um, I don't know if you got anything, but I sure as hell did. Uh, just real quick, um, <laughs> it was a little bit of a weird, well, a little, it was a weird week for the both of us. I'm not going to go into details. Uh, but thank you guys for being patient, patient with us, as always. Um, we're excited to get this episode out, finally. And uh, it's a big episode and kind of a scary episode for me. By the way, I would like to say that the fact that it's scary for you is actually like the crux of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, we yeah, are anyways. we are talking about the Northwest Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so which are <laughs> a predecessor thing. and su- successor to each other. Now, the reason why I'm a little nervous about this is because I've said this before, my brother is a officer in the RCMP. That's all I'm going to say because I will not reveal his name. I will not reveal where he works. Just for his, partially his safety and his privacy, and but mostly his privacy. Mm-hmm. He actually is the one that suggest, that uh, requested this episode last year during our one year anniversary live stream. And... Here we are, finally doing it. Now, the RCMP, it's fair to say it is a controversial organization. And literally, as like we knew this was coming up, again, kind of like the Spanish flu episode, all sorts of incidents have now been occurring relating to the RCMP. Even while this episode is being recorded, there might be something new. And to make that clear... Um, these aren't new controversies entirely either, like, or new thing. Just, it's not just now that we're talking about, we are just now talking about it. It's long overdue conversation, (laughs) in my opinion, at least, because just because we're talking about the brutality that exists, that they're doing, that they're committing now doesn't mean that we're not, which just means that we're just not talking about all of the previous stuff. So, yeah. And I would say that, like, I wouldn't say the RCMP is a more controversial organization than any other police organization, necessarily. No. They're just controversial because they're the police. And, like, I, I guess also I'm also anticipating people probably saying to themselves, but the police aren't controversial or shouldn't be controversial. Uh, but they are because, um, I don't know, actually, I'll, and we'll talk a bit more about it at oh, the end. But it, It's definitely true that they shouldn't be, but they are. <laughs> Yeah, and I, but I think, like, the idea of just, like, the, the discussion of policing in general and, like, the role of the police is, like, it's a good, it, it, like, actually not a bad thing that they're controversial in a sense because it's forcing us to actually discuss the role of police and, like, what we actually want. And, I don't know, research for this episode definitely uh, helped me, like, realize, like, yeah, the police really aren't, like, what we think they are. <laughs> like, no. And they never really have been, but we definitely think, conceive of the police as one thing, and they are not that. And I would say that that's definitely, like, 
very much a, a white privilege thing on my part because I've always had the ability of seeing them as one thing when they weren't that thing. Yeah, and I think on both of our parts, yeah. really. So I guess with that, we should probably just dive in. Absolutely. So we have to go way, 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 way back, more than 100 years. 150 yeah. to be as of Wednesday. As of, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. Woo. Happy, um, uh, happy Canada Day. <laughs> happy Fourth, I guess, because yeah. we're recording this on the fourth. But anyway, uh, hi Brian. Uh, so, punch a Nazi today. <laughs> yeah, please do. Really, where this needs to begin is the purchase of this land that we did mention in our Confederation episode last year, Rupert's Land. Following Confederation, the Dominion of Canada consisted of the provinces of Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Remember, PEI did not join Confederation, even though that's where Confederation happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the borders of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were the exact same as they are today. However, Quebec only consisted about just under half of, the, of its current territory, while Ontario was only about a quarter of its current territory that it has today. It literally was only southern Ontario. Much of the territory now part of Canada was then part of what is known as Rupert's Land, centralized around the shore of the Hudson Bay and governed by the British monarchy and the Hudson ba Hudson's Bay Company directly. It was founded in 1670 by a royal charter of Charles II and named after the first HBC governor, Ru Prince Rupert of the Rhine, who I have to point out looks suspiciously like Enigo Mandoya. <laughs> He, does. he really, he really does. does. I didn't really think about that until you just said that. But he really does. He really it's does. it's uncanny yeah. almost. It stretched as far north into Baffin Island, south into the modern day North Dakota, east into Labrador, and west into Saskatchewan. Eventually, HBC held a monopoly in the fur trade all the way to the Pacific Coast in modern day British Columbia and the territories of Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. Expansion of Canada to the West was a major interest for the Dominion government immediately following Confederation. This was due to expressed American interest in expanding its influence over the Western territories, which the British were desperate to maintain as part of their sphere. I don't know if any, have any of you guys heard of 5440 or fight? That's what they were talking about. And um, the British called their bluff and the Americans were like, okay. <laughs> that's a brief explanation. We'll, we'll, we will talk about that in a later episode, but that's basically the gist of it. On December 21st, 1867, Charles Stanley Monk, the then Governor General of Canada, urged the Secretary of State for the Colonies, as well as a joint address to the Senate and House of Commons, requesting Rupert's Land and the Red River Settlement territory be transferred over to Canada. This request was submitted before the Crown itself for consideration. The Privy Council selected George E. Cartier, the Minister of Militia and Defense, and William McDougall, the Minister of Public Works, to negotiate the annexation. The new Secretary of State for the Colonies, Earl Granville, presented both sides with a 12-page ultimatum on March 9, 1869. It was not received well by either party, and thus negotiations continued and actually almost broke down. However, on November 19th, a deal was finally reached. The deal said that Canada was to compensate the HBC with £300,000. One twentieth of the Ferdell Belt, which is bounded by the 49th parallel, the Rocky Mountains, North Saskatchewan River, and Lake of the Woods slash 
Winnipeg River Waterway, would be granted to the HBC. HBC would receive the lands or reserves around all of its posts, and the HBC was guaranteed the right to continue to trade without special taxation, tariffs, or other hindrance. So basically, they were allowed to keep their monopoly. Because back in that day, beaver pelts were worth a lot of fucking money. Mm-hmm. The British granted Canada a loan to ensure it could purchase the land because, as we said, the British really wanted, like, they preferred Canada have this land. The deal was ratified by the Canadian government on December 1st, 1869. Queen Victoria granted royal assent to Rupert's land and the North- Northwestern Territory, enactment number three better known as the Deed of Surrender, on June 23, 1870. It came into effect on July 15th and remains in force to this day. With this, Canada received all HBC territory with the exception of British Columbia, which remained a British colony. While this was happening, the Manitoba Act was also passed and received royal assent on May 12th. This created the province of Manitoba, which entered Confederation on the same day the deed of surrender went into force. But before the Manitoba Act, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the creation of Manitoba. Both negotiating parties had failed to negotiate with the indigenous and Métis population in the area and no thought on these people's sovereignty over the territory where they have resided for long before colonization and who had become highly involved in the fur trade. In true colonial fashion, the indigenous and Métis people were treated as a deterrent to Western expansion. So basically, they were like, well, these people don't want Western expansion. They're going to do everything they can to prevent Western expansion, which actually wasn't entirely the case. There was quite a bit of support for expansion of Canada to annex these territories by these people. For those, now, I've said the word Métis. For those of you who don't know who the Métis people are, they are mixed indigenous and European settlers, primarily French settlers. It was commonly between male French settlers and female indigenous inhabitants. In the East, most Métis indigenous side was Wabanaki. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that. Algonquin and Menomini. While in the West, they're most commonly Cree, Ojibwe, and Salcho, as well as Dakota and Lakota, Dakota slash Lakota. During the negotiations, the Métis and Indigenous peoples began to vocalize their opposition to the lack of consultation and inclusion of these peoples in the talks. Tensions increased when McDougall and Cartier ordered a survey of the Red River colony without informing the inhabitants, despite warnings from the Catholic and Anglican bishops of the area, as well as the AHBC governor himself, William McTavish saying that if you do this, this isn't going to be, <laughs> this is not going to be received well from the inhabitants and it'll be bad. The Métis feared the survey would lead to increased migration into the area, potentially threatening their culture, their way of life. And not only did they fear that they would lose their farms, but their culture and their language and their Catholic faith. And uh, as a result of marginalization and discrimination and truth be told, they weren't wrong. Furthermore, McDougall was a well-known was well known for his anti-French sentiments and he was appointed as Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territory on September 28th. This would definitely raise some eyebrows. Along came a man known as Louis Riel who is a Métis born and raised in the Red River Colony. 
and he rose as a political figure at the stage. He was highly educated, having attended European-style schools. He vocally expressed his opposition to the survey in a speech from the steps of St. Boniface Church, which is now the cathedral in Winnipeg. Riel founded the Métis National Committee as a means to represent the Métis interests and officially dispute the survey on October 11th. Riel set up a provisional government and began negotiations with the Canadian government directly in order to establish the province of Manitoba. Riel also made sure an equal number of Anglophones were represented on the provisional government. Anglophones continued to resist Riel's government, and on January 9, 1870, a mass escape took place at Fort Garry, which, which had become occupied by Riel's and the Métis at the time. Two of the escapees, Thomas Scott and Charles Maher, conspired with Charles Bolton, a member of the original survey, to overthrow the provincial, the provisional government. However, Bolton had a change of heart and turned his party back partway through the journey. The conspiracy was discovered and Bolton and Scott were arrested on February 17th near Fort Garry. Riel made it, wanted to make an example of Bolton. He was tried and sentenced to death. However, negotiations successfully led to Bolton being pardoned. Scott misinterpreted the pardon as an act of cowardice by the Métis and would frequently fight with the guards. As a result, they requested Scott be trapped for insubordination. He was found guilty of insulting the president, defying the authority of the provisional government, and assaulting the guards. He, in turn, was sentenced to death. Bolton attempted to convince Riel to spare Scott, but it was, but it was claimed Riel's response, response to HBC Representative Donald Alexander Smith was, quote, I have done three good things since I have commenced. I have spared Bolton's life, at your insistence. I pardoned Gaddy, and now I shall shoot Scott. Scott's execution was carried out on March 4th, 1870, by firing squad. Scott's execution is considered Riel's greatest blunder by modern historians. On May 12th, the Métis were granted 200,000 hectares of land to create the province of Manitoba. They were also allowed to freely hunt on their lands and be granted governance with some devolved powers to protect Métis rights. However, anger over Scott's execution in the East, mainly in Ontario, prevented the granting of amnesty to Riel. In 1875, he was exiled from Canada for five years. A joint expedition of Canadian militia and British regulars marched to Manitoba to establish Canadian authority over the province. Riel believed the force meant to lynch him, and he fled with his followers once the troops arrived at Fort Garry on August 24th. This marked the end of the first rebellion in the area known as the Red River Rebellion, with Scott as its only casualty. On August 3rd, 1871, the Imperial Crown of Great Britain and Ireland and the Ashinaabe and Swampy Cree nations signed Treaty 1, the first of the numbered treaties signed between 1871 and 1921. The treaty was an agreement for the bands to cede their land in southern Manitoba over to the Crown while ensuring peaceful coexistence between the indigenous and settler populations. Treaty 2 was, late, was signed later that month on the 21st at Manitoba House in what is now central Manitoba with the Ojibwe. In both treaties, the First Nations received reserve land, compensation, farming equipment, and education while Canada obtained the land rights, while also promising peace, providing law and order, and, and charged with restricting alcohol consumption on reserve land. It was around this time that the whiskey trade in the West was also increasing. So it began to rise significantly during 1860 with the increased industrialization in the United States. The new steam-powered engines in the factories used driving belts 
made of buffalo hide, increasing demand. This further diminished the already decreasing population of bison who were being hunted to produce winter gear and blankets. The end of the American Civil War saw the displacement of thousands and many resettled in the, Man in the Montana Territory near the border with Canada. During the HBC rule of Rupert's Land, trade of alcohol was done with limited distribution. With the new American settlers, the trade increased. The brand they made was a mixture of pepper, gunpowder, and sometimes strychnine, which is, I believe, extremely poisonous. Strychnine? Yeah. Yeah, strychnine is, po yeah, it is poison. It's gopher poison. It's what, like, farmers use to kill gophers. Kill people, too. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's not healthy. No. Also those clouds. Yeah, we, we are going to get hit by a storm here, people. The increased consumption of alcohol in the territory increased violence in the already lawless area. Tensions also rose between Chaders and the local First Nations villagers. We'll come back to that. If you remember also in our Confederation episode, we mentioned a series of raids called the Fenian Raids. And in short, these were a group of American Irish veterans of the Civil War who attempted to invade Canada to hold it for ransom in order to gain Irish independence. It did not succeed and it stopped for a while, but following a hiatus, the Fenian Brotherhood once again began to threaten the security of Canada and the remaining British colonies, aka British Columbia. On May 25, 1870, Canadian authorities were alerted by English spy Thomas Miller Beach of, to an imminent raid into Quebec. The 60th Canadian Battalion, along with armed civilians, gathered at Eccles Hill between, I'm going to butcher this, Freilisburg and St. Armand. 600 Canadian militia faced off against 680 Fenians, taking the latter by surprise. After an exchange of gunfire, the Fenians fled, suffering two deaths, 18 wounded, and forced to leave behind their single cannon. Two days later, Fenian Brotherhood General John O'Neill and Owen Starr had infiltrated Canada and began constructing, constructing forward positions. The group had to briefly retreat to organize with reinforcements. Once completed, Starr moved across the Trout River just outside of Huntington, Quebec. Three Canadian infantry units took up positions in the village that marched to meet the Fenians. After a skirmish, with both sides firing as they advanced, the Canadians managed to get into a position to flank the Fenians. Seeing this, Starr regrouped his men and they fled back into the United States. Non not long after they crossed back, U.S. Marshal George P. Foster arrived and placed O'Neill under arrest for violating neutrality laws. Starr fled the scene but was eventually captured. O'Neill received a two-year sentence, but he was pardoned by Ulysses Grant that October and released. Afterwards, O'Neill briefly renounced the idea of invading Canada, but was convinced by William Bernard O'Donoghue, an associate of the, of the exiled Louis Riel. O'Neill formed a splinter group of the Brotherhood and led them on a raid into Manitoba, capturing the HBC post and a customs house. However... It turned out that the two locations were actually within the United States, and the force was arrested outside of Pen Pembina, Dakota Territory. O'Donoghue was captured by Louis Riel and the Métis and given to American authorities. However, all charges were dropped. This marked the end of the Fenian raids, and it is probably an epic fail. 
The raids strained Canadian-American relations and fueled anti-American sentiment in Canada, accusing the Americans of tolerating an invasion group by allowing them to openly meet and plan, which I don't think is wrong. Yeah. During the planning and parliamentary proceedings of the Mounted Police Act, a combination of Canadian-American Wolfer, Wolfers Pact, or Wolf Hunters, were camped on the Teton River in Montana when local natives stole their horses, allegedly. Incensed, the group traveled to Fort Benton, begging the garrison for assistance, but were denied. The men decided to take matters into their own hands, and the 13 sent out to retrieve their horses, willing to use violence due to previous incidents with the natives. The men came across whiskey trader George Hammond, and he assured the men the nearby tribe led by Little Soldier had no horses with them. The men drank into the night, and during which Hammond's horse was stolen, allegedly. Outraged, Hammond took a rifle and ordered the rest of the wolfers to follow, determined to reclaim his horse. Hammond approached the camp with the others, positioned the, uh, while the others positioned themselves on a nearby riverbank. Both the Wolfers and Little Soldiers tribes were heavily intoxicated at this time. When confronted, Little Soldier denied anyone from there had stolen the horse, but stated he had seen his horse grazing in a nearby field. Little Soldier attempted to calm the situation by offering two of his own horses as hostages until Hammonds was found. Little Soldier's tribe became uneasy and when men prepared the fight, while the women and children fled the village. This was seen by the Wolfers and they prepared to fire. Abe Farwell, owner of the training posts the Wolfers and Hammond had met, begged the Wolfers to hold fire, wanting to avoid bloodshed. However, Hammond suddenly fired his rifle at the natives and the Wolfers in turn opened fire with a volley. The villagers attempted to fire back but were plagued with inferior weapons and unable to position themselves to attack the Wolfers. The exact numbers are not known but it is believed up to 30 Assiniboine natives were killed in the massacre. On the Wolfers' side, French-Canadian Ed Lagasse was killed. The Wolfers buried him in a nearby native cabin and then set the building ablaze. The event went unchecked until August when news of the massacre finally reached Ottawa. The Canadian government immediately went about having those responsible extradited from the United States for trial, leading to a legal confrontation between Canada and the United States. The task of the investigation would be placed in the hands of a newly formed organization. Yeah. Kind of go back a little bit. Um, yeah, so as we had we've talked about, the Dominion of Canada was obviously formed in 1867 by the Confederation of the British Colonies of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New, and New Brunswick. But all of the land to the north and west of Ontario was, call, was governed by the Hudson's Bay Company and the Dominion of Canada wanted it. They wanted it for a few reasons. Obviously, as Jonah had mentioned, uh, threats and fears of the United States annexation, but also vast resources and farmland. The regions and questions vary widely in geography. Um, the Northwest Territories included basically from the far north to the Great Plains and the Canadian Shield in Quebec. So again, everything wow. west and north of Ontario, essentially. Um, surveys of the area refer referred to it as, quote, the Wild Northland and the Great Lone Land, despite the First Nations who lived there still being there. The government saw these, lands, uh, saw these as lands to conquer and colonize. The Canadian border along the southern edge of Alberta was occupied by the Blackfoot Confederacy. They had suffered badly from smallpox brought by colonists to the area and were under increasing pressure from rival groups of Sioux and Pagan, 
who had crossed into Canada fleeing the United States' expansion across the plains. Whiskey traders had also come across the border, selling alcohol to the First Nations and otherwise fueling social problems and outbreaks of violence. There was no civil government representing the Crown in the region, and military explorers highlighted the, quote, lawlessness and lack of security for life or property that resulted from the absence of formal justice. In 1869, Sir John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of Canada, decided that a mounted police force would um, be much cheaper than deploying regular military units and would still enable the colonization of the region. The implementation of the proposal was delayed by, first by a Métis rebellion and also the threat of Fenian invasion. Um, there was also some debate about the size of the force. Lieutenant William Butler wanted a force of around 150 men, while Macdonald had suggested around 200. And in 1872, Colonel Patrick Robertson Ross conducted another survey and recommended an alternate strategy of recruiting 550 men and pushing south into the border region itself and establish law and order over there. Macdonald got approval for the new force on May 23, 1873, after Parliament passed the Mounted Police Act into law unopposed. At this point, it appears that Macdonald intended for this force to watch, quote, the frontier from Manitoba to the foot of the Rocky Mountains, probably with the, the headquarters being in Winnipeg. He was heavily influenced by the Royal Irish Constabulary, which combined aspects of traditional military units with the judicial functions of the magistrates' courts. He believed that the new force should also be able to provide a local system of government in otherwise ungoverned areas. Originally, Macdonald also wanted to form units of Métis policemen commanded by white Canadian officers in a similar manner to the British Indian Army, but after the Métis Revolt of 1870, he scrapped that plan. <laughs> yeah. After the Cypress Hills Massacre, which Jonah just discussed, the new force was sent west to the prairies in response. Their initial journey was known as the March West, and it took place between July 8th and October 9th, 1874. And this March West is like a very big part of RCMP lore. Um, they, it's very like glamorized, which I'm here to come shatter. And um, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. So the force was, I'm just going to leave it at that. The force was given orders to proceed to Fort Edmonton in order to resolve problems around Fort Whoopup before dispersing to various posts. Also, Fort Whoopup, what a name. Um, <laughs> before, disper before dispersing to various posts stretching westwards across the territories. From Fort Dufferin in Manitoba, one option was to trace the southern line of the frontier following a well-established trail created two years before by the British United States Boundary Commission. Alexander Morris, Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories, disagreed with this approach and argued that it might encourage an attack by the Sioux First Nation and encourage the Northwest Mounted Police to take a more northerly route. It was finally agreed upon, which, like every story starts out, every, every story that ends poorly starts this way, where it's like, we should take this good route, and someone's like, no, take the other route. <laughs> um, <laughs> every single time. <laughs> um, so it was finally agreed upon that the expedition would follow the trail, but then would then veer away from the border in Sioux territory. The force finally left Fort Dufferin on July 8th. The expedition was 275 strong, with six divisions labeled A to F, supported by 310 horses, 143 draft oxen, and 187 Red River carts, and wagons stretching at least two and a half kilometers along the track. They took two field guns and two mortars for protections, cattle to use as food, and mowing machines for making hay. A journalist from the Canadian Illustrated News also accompanied the force, with the commissioner hoping for a positive account. LOL. They made about 15 miles a day in distance, un which is not much at all, traveling under unpleasant and arduous conditions, made more difficult by the fact that the Northwest Mounted Police Teamsters were inexperienced and the horses were not suited for draft work. So it was a pretty fraught expedition from the start. They were just, it was really poorly planned, really poorly executed. 
On July 29th, the badly depleted A Division, including those men suffering from dysentery, were left behind as the main force turned off the southerly trail and across the much dr drier and rougher plains to the northwest. Food began to run out, and because they did not bring water bottles, like dumbasses, they were forced to drink contaminated local water. Another detachment of the sicker men were left behind at Old Wives Lake, and on August 24th, the expedition reached the Cypress Hills, where the weather turned wet and cold, and their horses began to starve and die. Commissioner French brought Fort thought Fort Wopup would be found at the junction of the Bow and South Saskatchewan rivers, but when they arrived in September, there was nothing there. That was because the fort was 120 kilometers away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking morons. So, the Northwest Mounted Police had expected the area to be good grazing for their horses, but it was barren and treeless. French described it as little better than a desert, and his men were reduced to drinking muddy water from a marsh. Facing a total loss of their horses and imminent starvation, they abandoned the plan to Fort Wopup and went south to the Sweetgrass Hills, which was on the border with Montana, where the supplies could be bought from the United States. More horses died from the cold and hunger, and many men were barefoot and in rags when they arrived. Mm. After, re after resupplying in, Mon in Montana, French sent Divisions D and E back east before taking B, C, and F to Fort Wopup. The expedition was obviously badly planned and poorly executed, and it nearly failed. It has been described, quote, as a monumental fiasco of poor planning, ignorance, or ignorance, incompetence, and cruelty to men and beasts. Which is, yep. Yep. <laughs> accurate. That's just, that's what happens when the Northwest Mounted Police plan an expedition, I guess. Uh, I don't know. By the time they arrived, the whiskey traders were aware that they were coming and had since moved on. So by the time they arrived, no one was even there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Like, they got to the wrong place after they almost killed everyone. Like, everyone almost died and they got to the wrong place. Had to go south to resupply. And by the time they got there, the whiskey traders knew they were coming and all fucking left. Yeah. And so, at that point, it was kind of a disaster, uh, the Northwest Mounted Police had new orders from Ottawa to garrison the area, and they settled down to build Fort McLeod on an island in the Old Man River. Uh, my family lives in Fort McLeod. Fun fact. Nice place. It is nice. Yeah, so Fort McLeod was really one of the bigger forts, trading forts in southern, uh, well, the Northwest Territories at the time, now Alberta. And uh, the whiskey trade around Fort McLeod had collapsed, and the traders eventually shifted on to other businesses or moved on with the arrival of the RCMP, or the Northwest Mounted Police. So NWMP doesn't have the same uh, ring, to it. ring to it as RCMP. Got to give them that. They have a good acronym. Um... <laughs> The Blackfoot, whose territory this was and still is, for the most part welcomed the arrival of the police and Chief Crowfoot promoted a policy of cooperation at first. The Blackfoot Confederacy, uh, or sometimes referred to as the Blackfoot Nation, is comprised of three Blackfoot First Nations, the Kainai, Pekani, and Siksika. Their traditional t and their traditional territory spans parts of southern Alberta, or well, what is now southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, and northern Montana. The reason I say what is now these places is because these are colonial borders. <laughs> Other nations had come to settle in the area, such as the Sarsi, which is uh, now the Sutina First Nation, uh, Stony, which is Bears Paw, Chiniki, and Wesley First Nations, out by Banff and Canmore. They had come to settle in the area. Uh, they had usually been pushed into the area due to tensions with other tribes, um, allying themselves with the Blackfoot. So for instance, Sutina are actually from closer to Edmonton originally. That tribe migrated south due to pressure and wars with other tribes in the north, and eventually they aligned themselves with the Blackfoot. But their, lang their language group is actually more similar to like Cree and other northern First Nations. I think they're a descendant of the Dene. Went down a rabbit hole. 
We'll talk. I wanted to, we're going to talk more about the Blackfoot Confederacy um, in another. We're actually going to do a whole episode on it. Uh, so we'll actually talk a little more specifically about it later. But I'm going to still give some details here. But um, after that first winter, uh, the RCMP, or the, oh my God, the Mountie Force split up, establishing forts in other cities such as Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, meanwhile, the frontier was changing as homesteaders and cattle ranchers began to take over large swaths of land on the plains. The First Nations peoples who had occupied this territory for time immemorial were largely nomadic and had settled in the area due to the, bison, due to the bison supply, but due to overhunting by settlers in the area, the supply was beginning to thin. By 1879, the bison could no longer be found in any significant numbers on the plains. And at the time, or well, at the same time, the government of Canada was also eyeing this territory for numerous reasons, including the value its value as farmland, which was attractive to settlers, and the opportunity to build the Canadian Pacific Railway, and other business opportunities, of course, that come with colonization. <laughs> um, this, combina this combination of opportunistic state-sponsored land grabbing and bison killing put the Blackfoot in an uncomfortable position with minimal options but to seek cultural and polit political protection by striking a deal with the government, much as First Nations in Manitoba and the first two treaties had done, as Jonah described. And this was always the intention of the government. Like I said, this was state-sponsored land grabbing and bison killing. Um, they, knew it, they knew what they were doing. The government saw the indigenous peoples who occupied the regions they wanted to make part of Canada as an obstacle and inferior peoples who needed to be assimilated and dealt with, essentially. That's a terrifying phrase. Yeah. Assimilated and dealt with. Oof. But like... It's also accurate. <laughs> By this time, the government had signed a number of treaties with indigenous groups in Canada, implementing a reserve system where indigenous peoples gave up large swaths of their territory in exchange for protection, rights, education, and support from the government. The ultimate goal of the government was to use this system to assimilate indigenous peoples into the white agricultural economy. The leaders of the Confederacy nations were interest interested in treaties as they had common concerns about Americans crossing the border and the ability to protect themselves from diseases. They had seen pandemics sweep through their nations with the arrival of settlers, and disease control was definitely becoming important. They had also seen the Northwest Mounted Police deal well with keeping American whiskey traders away and felt that they could trust them. Spoiler alert, they weren't very trustworthy. <laughs> Treaty number seven was signed in September 1877 between the Canadian government and the five First Nations of the Confederacy on the, on the Canadian side of the border anyways. Uh, Sigziga, Pekani, or Pekani, uh, Stony Nakoda and Satina, and it was the last treaty signed between the government and First Nations for the next 20 years. And a lot of nasty shit happened in those 20 years, by the way. Mm -hmm. Negotiations of the treaty took place between Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories David Laird and James McLeod, who was Commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police, the government's representative. So yeah, the uh, RC or the Northwest Mounted Police were literally involved in the signing of the treaty, like they were the government representative. Yeah, the First Nations representatives were largely Blackfoot, as it was their land being sought after, and the Blackfoot Nation sent Chief Crowfield as their main negotiator. The signing of the treaty took place at Blackfoot Crossing, a location at what is now Six Sigga First Nation Reserve Land. It was somewhat problematic for some of the Six Sigga, or some of the other nations to travel to, as far as the location went, because it was quite far from their hunting grounds, and as a result, it pushed negotiations back by two days. McLeod, Laird, and representatives from Six Sigga, St Stony Nakoda, and Satina arrived on September 16th, but they agreed to wait two days for the others to arrive. On September 19th, negotiations began. The government state, stated facts about the decline of the buffalo and proposed laws that would protect the buffalo, along with teaching them more about agriculture, or teaching the First Nations more about agriculture and ranching as a way to transition from being dependent on them, or being dependent on the buffalo. 
Laird stressed that it was important to understand that the buffalo would soon be gone and it was important for them to find a way to transition into agriculture and ranching lifestyles that would be supported by the government. There was also discussion of, about annual payments, reserve land, and education. First Nations leadership was deeply concerned about their continued ability to hunt and fish across all of the land. Crowfoot waited for the arrival of Red Crow, leader of Kainai Nation, and, and a trusted friend of McLeod before making any decisions on the treaty. Crowfoot explained to Red Crow, to the best of his understanding, about what he believed the treaty to be about, and once he did that, the treaty was agreed upon by all the leaders and was signed on September 22, 1877. The treaty involved 130,000 kilometers of land stretching from the Rocky Mountains to the Cypress Hills, the Red Deer River, and the U.S. border. The terms of the treaty stated that all nations still maintained the right to hunt and fish on the land, and in exchange for giving up the land, each nation was to receive land equal to one square mile per family of five in proportion to that number, depending on whether the family was larger or smaller. Not a lot of land, by the way, for a family of five. Along with the exchange of land, an immediate payment was given to every person on the premise of annual payments of $25 to the nation's chief. The government also agreed to pay the salary of the teachers on reserves. By the way, these payments still continue and they are still like $25 or something ridiculously small. Wow. Yeah, treaty payments are still a thing. The last agreement, which is just insulting at this point, the last agreement was that each family would be given livestock proportion to the, their family size. These were the agreed upon terms in exchange for Blackfoot land. And there is very strong evidence to support, the, to support that the negotiations were not in good faith and the First Nations leaders did not have a good understanding of what the treaty really meant. Which is really obvious when you actually see what they get out of it because it's extremely one-sided. The government just takes all their land and they get the shittiest pieces and nothing. The implications of the treaty immediately after are very clear. Uh, the bison disappeared faster than expected and the promised support from the Canadian government to transition to an agricultural lifestyle did not happen very quickly or at all in some cases. The winter following the signing of the treaty was really harsh. The nations were still waiting on the government to state what land they were able to claim, and so they were in this weird limbo as well. Um, in his book, Clearing the Plains, uh, James Daszak shows primary evidence that Prime Minister MacDonald's Indian agents, who were the chief administrators for Indian affairs in their respective districts, the term is now obviously in disuse because of um, the word Indian, but um, the term is, the, the position still exists and is called a government agent. So there is primary evidence in this book that Prime Minister MacDonald's Indian agents explicitly withheld food in order to drive bands onto their reserve land and out of the way of the railroads. So what was happening at the time was because MacDonald really wanted everybody onto these reserves so he could build the CPR, they really like slowed down the assistance to the bands that they had promised, uh, and somewhat intentionally. A liberal MP at the time called this, quote, a policy of submission shaped by a policy of starvation. So... And that's from a primary source. That's, that's from the 1800s there, that quote. The government care on reserves was sometimes worse, actually, than if they were on their own off of reserve. The meager agricultural equipment that they did get was terrible, and relocated First Nations were expected to immediately grow enough food to sustain themselves, which is extraordinarily unfair, obviously. The policy was a total failure, obviously, and when reserves inevitably began to slide back into famine, Indian agents kept rations low enough to ensure constant hunger so as to discourage the expectation of, quote, gratuitous assistance from Ottawa. Food provided by the government was often rancid thanks to corrupt suppliers. In 1883, tainted government flour killed up to 20 people at what is now Kainai First Nation reserve land. The squalor ensured that MacDonald spent much of his tenure in the 1880s overseeing near constant famines and epidemics on federally controlled reserves. Indian agents often ruled with iron fists and immeasurable cruelty. This pattern of irresponsible and sadistic 
in one case, actually, an Indian agent called all of the, like, starving people that he was overseeing to the location where all the food was just to, like, laugh at them and turn them away without anything. There was, like, 200 starving people, and he just, like, laughed at them and turned them away. Called in there intentionally just to laugh at them and turn them away. Pattern of irresponsible and sadistic leadership would continue with the residential school system, which was introduced by MacDonald in 1883 and formally ended in Canada in 1996. MacDonald justified the creation of the school system, school system to the House of Commons by saying, quote, when a school is on the reserve, the child lives with his parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages. He is simply a savage who can read and write. MacDonald continued to tighten the leash by banning traditional ceremonies and creating the past system, which required First Nations to obtain permission from their Indian agents to leave the reserve. Both of these policies persisted well into the 20th century. These policies were enforced, of course, by the Northwest Mounted Police as they enforced Canadian law. The system isn't broken, it was built this way. At the same time, the Northwest Mounted Police were also managing the Sitting Bull incident. In 1876, the US military led a campaign against the Sioux in Dakota. Sioux's leader, Sitting Bull, concluded that the conflict was unwinnable and chose to seek sanctuary in Canada. Sitting Bull arrived in May the following year, and by, by the summer, around 5,600 Sioux had crossed the border despite opposition from the Blackfoot. The Mounties helped facilitate the negotiations with the Sioux, in which the Sioux refused to return south. The Northwest Mounted Police deployed 200 men to Fort Walsh to oversee the group, this group of Sioux, and conditions at the fort were primitive even for the police. The police often shared their own supply with the Sioux and captive there because they were not covered by Treaty 7 and were therefore ineligible for any government support, and the officers there did not want to see them all starve. But eventually, starvation gradually forced the return of most of the group to the United States, including Sitting Bull, who surrendered in 1881. Initially, the Northwest Mounted Police, their efforts at policing the First Nations was dealing with illegal alcohol consumption. Um, indigenous peoples in Canada were subje subject to prohibition of alcohol under the Indian Act of 1886. This was an attempt on the part of the government to facilitate assimilation because for an indigenous person to possess alcohol, they had to become a Canadian citizen through enfranchisement, and to be eligible for enfranchisement, indigenous people, indigenous people had to display sobriety, which means that they never really were meant to get enfranchisement. The system was kind of rigged. Yeah. Again, system isn't broken. It was built this way. The laws were also reflected a widespread false belief among North Americans, which still exists, by the way, and this also exists across the world still, that indigenous peoples are more prone to alcohol dependency, which is known as the firewater myth. Sections of the Indian Act regarding alcohol consumption were not repealed until 1985. The Indian Act still exists and is still called the Indian Act. In 1881, the Canadian government began the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway between Eastern Canada and British Columbia with the aim of opening up the Northwest Territories for settlement. As a result, the Northwest Mounted Police moved their headquarters to the town of Regina, which was the new territorial capital founded along the railway line. The force increased in size to 500 in 1882 to cope with the increased tasks being demanded of it, and the police be began to use the railway to bring in recruits more easily from east the eastern provinces. The mounted police took on an array of tasks associated with the railway project. They escorted construction teams through the Rocky Mountains, as they had been given special jurisdiction over the area along the line of the route. They enforced liquor laws and oversaw itinerant service workers who accompanied the main construction teams. They diffused tensions between the construction workers and the company, even resolving some cases where the workers had not been paid by the company as promised. However, they are the police after all, and also intervened to support the railway company. When railway staff went on strike for higher wages in 1883, the mounted police guarded the company's trains, escorted new drivers in, and when necessary, broke the, drove the locomotives themselves. They were like the ultimate strike breakers. 
Two years later, the police broke up a protest about unpaid wages by over 1,000 workers arresting the main leaders. The head of the Canadian Pacific Railway, William Van Horn, thanked the force for its contribution to the final completion of the project. Yeah. Did you mention that <clears throat> the, James, the Sitting Bull incident led James McLeod to resign? Yes, it did. Uh, he was he was pissed. He was ex he was on he was angry yeah. about it and disgusted. So, yeah, I mean, good good for him. Yeah, of like people, he was definitely an honorable man. Yeah, I would um, say. him and Red Crow had a really good well, not I mean, as good as you can have, I suppose. Him and yeah. Red Crow had had a positive relationship, which is why it was really important to Crowfoot that he wait for Red Crow to arrive because him and McLeod, like the government's representatives was McLeod and he was co close with Red Crow. And so yeah. it was important for Crowfoot to have that extra like goodwill. Yeah, absolutely. But he was, McLeod was definitely a um, honorable man. Yeah. Say. I mean, as honorable as yeah. colonization is, I guess. Yeah, like, I, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, in this in this type of setting. Yeah, and he did as best he could to like make sure things were fair, but unfortunately, it's not how things work. With this going on, of government tensions with the Métis, Cree, and Assiniboine once again sparked up over the same demographical differences as before, along with the construction of the CPR. There was also anger over the unfair treaties and the diminishing of the bison population, which. Yeah, they're all, those are all fair reasons to be pissed. Surveyors in 1882 divided up land of the new district of Saskatchewan in the, I have no idea, seigneurial system, which is the French system of like having the land up against a river and then flowing outward, kind of in a straight, um, as opposed to the blocks, like the block kind of English way. The next year, to the shock and outrage of many, residents discovered bits of their private and bits of their private land and the village land had been sold to the Prince Albert Colonization Company. The Métis feared they would lose their land as none of them possessed clear land titles. This was intentional by the government. This would mean they would lose their primary source of sustenance as the buffalo herds were mostly gone from the area at this point. In 1884, Louis Riel was asked by the Métis to return from exile to make an appeal to the government. However, the government's response was vague and unsatisfactory. In March 1885, Riel, along with Gabriel Dumont and Henri Jackson, established the Provisional Government of Saskatchewan in an attempt to pressure the federal government, much as they had during the Red River Rebellion. On March 26, between 150 and 200 Métis and Native soldiers, commanded by Dumont, successfully defeated a combined Prince Albert Volunteers and NWMP force at the Battle of Duck Lake. Following the battle, a 3,000-strong combined militia and NWMP force were dispatched to the district. On April 2nd, a raiding party led by Wandering Spirit took the town of Frog Lake, having been inspired mm. by the events at Duck Lake. All the settlers were rounded up into the church and were being prepared to be moved to a nearby camp as, hostage, as hostages. Mm -hmm. The local Indian agent, Thomas Quinn, refused to leave the town. Infuriated, wandering spirits shot and killed Quinn. 
Big Bear, another one of the leaders, attempted to stop the shooting but was too late. The others in Wandering Spirits Band shot and killed another eight settlers after. The remaining hostages were then led away. The Cree obtained another victory at Fort Pitt on April 15th after the garrison surrendered to the large Cree force, led by Big Bear. The police officers were set free, but the civilians were kept as hostages and the fort was razed to the ground. The Canadian militia mobilized to Winnipeg following news of the events at Duck Lake and Frog Lake. On May 9th, the militia attacked Batoche, not outnumbering the Métis forces. After three days of battle, the Métis ran out of ammo and fired stones and other sharp objects from their guns, which I don't think sounds like a good idea at mm, all. Not really. Seeing no other option, Riel surrendered on May 15th, ending the provisional government. On May 28th, militia forces along with the NWMP detachment from Calgary intercepted Big Bear's forces, leading to the battle at Frenchman's Butte. This resulted in a Cree victory. The NWMP, led by the famed Sam Steele, which Lindsay's going to talk about in a moment, engaged Cree forces led by Big Bear and Wandering Spirit north of Frenchman's Butte on June 3rd at Loon Lake. The 75 outnumber militia managed to, to route the 150 strong Cree forces and free the hostages they had with them. This was the final battle in the Northwest Rebellion and the final battle fought on Canadian soil to this date. The surrender of Riel ended with the will ended the will to to fight for the Cree and remaining Métis forces, and the majority of them surrendered by July 2nd. Word was sent back about the devastating food shortage among the Cree Assiniboine reserves, and a massive food relief was actually sent from the from the federal government. Big Bear was sentenced to eight years in prison and died in 1888. Wandering Spirit, along with seven others, were hanged at Battleford for their role in the Frog Lake Massacre, as well as the murder of two North Battleford farmers. Louis Riel was put on trial for treason, initially to be conducted in Winnipeg. However, the location was switched to Regina due to what historians argue was to prevent an ethnically mixed jury that would be more sympathetic to Riel's plight. The trial began on July 28th and lasted five days before a jury of English and Scottish Protestants. He was found guilty with the jury recommending mercy. However, Judge Hugh Richardson sentenced Riel to death. His sentence was carried out on November 16th, 1885. His trial and death remain controversial to this day. It's interesting, Riel in Canada, I guess, is kind of... I don't want to necessarily say Robin Hood kind of figure, but... Um, kind of though, kind of like, that legendary yeah, status. Yeah, not like the it's not like the right term, but yeah, kind of same status. Yeah, similar yeah. status, I guess. So, I have mixed opinions on Riel. Uh, I feel he did make a lot of mistakes that I don't that or he a lot of what he did I don't agree with. But uh, in terms of fighting for the the rights of the Métis and the First Nations people at that time. Um, and like I wrote a paper about this, but a lot of like quite a bit, um, quite a bit of his ideology was stemmed back to the how he found out about like what the residential schools were doing. So I definitely understand his reason for for that, and I definitely think he's a more he's a better. I don't know. I don't think he's. 
I don't, I don't feel contra- like it's controversial to have schools named after him or um, statues of him. Uh, I certainly uh, think he's a less controversial figure in that sense than someone like Johnny McDonald. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, I would rather have everything named after Louis Riel than yeah, McDonald. Yeah, McDonald or Laurier. Or because like, Laurier is fucking he awful so as well. Awful. <laughs> Which we'll, we'll get when we eventually do all the prime ministers episode. I'm going to go off on Laurier because he's it, well. just really brief. He he stripped uh, the the First Nations rights to vote in yeah. like 1912. Yeah. So like, what the fuck? And they didn't get them back for a long time. Till like the 60s, I want to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, amongst other bullshit that he did. We posted a. Well, I mean, I posted, but we posted a, an, inst- an Instagram image a, a couple weeks ago now called like racism talks. And it's basically your money talks. And it's basically a photo of all the Canadian bills with all the prime ministers on them and quotes about quotes from them. And admittedly, like, yeah, of course, they're cherry picked. But like they're not singular quotes that exist no. from them. Like you can find a plethora of similar things. It's not like it was hard to land on that one quote. So no. it's not like you had to search far and wide to find it. It's a really good, really good image to just give you a basic idea of who yeah, these people are. Yeah, you guys seem to actually like that one a lot, and I'm it? quite happy with that It was just a really one. well It was good. Yeah, it's a well done whoever one. Whoever did them, I can't remember who made those images. I found them on Twitter, but whoever made them did a really good job. Yeah, for sure. Um, just really <clears throat> want to briefly mention the Northwest Mounted Police was heavily criticized for their role mm. in the in the North, in the Northwest Rebellion, not because of like any brutality or whatnot, but the Canadian militia accused them of not doing anything. <laughs> And just staying back in like safe, like the safe head, head, like main regions and whatnot, and kind of acting as backup, I guess. Yeah, I forgot to put that in my notes, but yeah, that was their criticism at that time. I mean, obviously, I have criticism towards Wandering Spirits massacre at Frog, Ra- Frog Lake. Mm. I mean, like you, can, I, I, I don't know what Thomas Quinn was like uh, um, as the Indian agent. But like I can imagine. Um, however, I don't feel that the other eight needed to die in that massacre. But again, it's like that kind of thing where it's like. It's not like the Indian agents ever really cared who they killed. <laughs> What's that? It's not like the government agents ever really distinguished. No, between... exactly. But so it's kind of like it's hard for me to like. I feel it kind of feels hard for me to criticize because like I also like criticize the government well it's one of those situations where it's like if you're gonna pick on one side then like yeah yeah you're not really focusing on the whole thing here because like it's really easy to always say well like oh because this happens a lot in historical debates about like leaders like wandering spirit and people like that who had to commit violence right i mean there's a lot of like just they're like oh they, they didn't have to kill those people and it's like yeah but when we talk about the tens of thousands and millions of their people that we've slaughtered or like the collective we here like those people slaughtered like they never discriminated as to who they no. were like, I, I agree <laughs> i agree with that and that's but why it, it's but like it's, the larger discussion yeah. is like that's, it's like in either case in, in both cases, both cases it was extremely wrong <laughs> yeah. and like and that's, it was bullshit that's that's the thing with the discussion is it's like yeah in both cases it's wrong but you can't just as a result you can't choose to focus on one of them because like yeah exactly <laughs> um so and like with louis riel i'm also really kind of torn about louis riel especially in terms of his like um, death sentence. Yeah. Because I understand how it's extremely controversial, his sentence, and, like, even his trial. 
but yeah, I mean, we'll get all down that rabbit hole pretty soon, so. Um, up until the 1890s, the government had pretty much no presence in the northwest of Canada. And when I say the northwest this time, I mean like the real northwest, not just everything north and west of Ontario. The frontier, the <laughs> yeah. real frontier of Canada. I mean, I mean like the actual northwest, like northern British Columbia and Yukon and stuff. <laughs> not like everything north and west of Ontario. <laughs> um, <laughs> But with the rise of gold mining and a growing population, Ottawa was forced to intervene in, in order to control the whiskey trade and the First Nations people, and probably get in on the action. So in response, the Mounties carried out a survey along the Yukon River and gathered customs duties. Along with the southern border, there were fears that the United States might try to seize the mineral-rich region. Um, there had been tension ever since the United States purchased Alaska from Russia. And a 20-mile police team was established at 40 Mile in 1895. Oh, yeah. um, it turned out that there was very little actual crime taking place in these areas, and tensions began to rise between the police and miners' committees, which were basically these informal or these groups put together in mining communities, which were just basically just like just a way to like provide informal justice during these years when there was no like formal justice. Yeah. Um, so the police brought over, so the police brought these issues to a head in June 1980. Oh, my God. June 1896. I wrote 1986. That's not right. I do that all the time. <laughs> the police brought these issues to a head in June 1896, sending a team into one of the mining camps to overturn the decisions of a local committee. Did not end well. In 1896, uh, also huge amounts of gold were discovered in the Klondike Valley. And once news of that spread, 100,000 people rushed into the Klondike in search of the wealth. Most of these period people had no experience with mining or prospecting or anything. And so in order to reach the area, they had to travel on foot over arduous mountains and along rivers using primitive boats, and no more than 40,000 of the original 100,000 ever actually made the gold fields. As a result of the influx of people, a substantial and expensive police detachment was established in the Klondike, amounting to 288 men by 1898, and representing about around a third of the entire mounted police force at the time, including some of its most experienced personnel. Amid fresh concerns that the Americans might annex the gold fields, the mounted police were tasked with asserting Canadian control along the borderline. They set up control posts at the borders of the Yukon and easily controlled mountain passes, equipping posts with Maxim guns. The police checked for illegal <laughs> weapons and prevented the entry of criminals and collect customs duties while helping protect and guide the flow of immigrants, mediating in their disputes and providing advice. Um, the police established their headquarters in the boom town of Dawson City, Yukon, and patrolled out, I've actually been there, it's pretty cool, and patrolled out across the Yukon territory, creating a network of 33 posts. Detectives, oh, and just for the record, Yukon, is, Yukon Territory is actually still called Yukon Territory, it's not an official province. Um, detectives were deployed to infiltrate American organizations to seek out potential conspiracies. Um, the police were also heavily involved in fire safety, game management, operating the postal and telegraph systems, and acting as coroners and running the mining registration system. So they did everything. Um, <laughs> historians have noted that the Yukon was essentially forming a police state during this period and have, and have highlighted the force's paternalistic willingness to invent and enforce non-existent laws whenever they considered it necessary. <laughs> as the police does. <laughs> In the end, they were helped out by the geography of the region when it came to keeping the undesirables out. Like, they're hailed as doing this really awesome job, but in reality, like the topography of the Yukon made it really hard for people to enter, anyways. So, like, as long <laughs> yeah, as you could, yeah. as long as you could control the easy routes, you were pretty solid. Yeah. In 1899, the Second Boer War broke out in Africa, and many members of the Mounted Police wanted to volunteer to serve. 
motivated, motivated by sympathy for the British imperial cause and the strong military tradition within the force. Commissioner Hirschmer had proposed sending a force of 350 men to join the Sudan campaign in 1896 that was turned down by his superiors. There was public enthusiasm for a Canadian military response, but at first it seemed that only a minimal deployment would be needed. And it was only after several British defeats that an offer of a more substantive force was welcomed by London. <laughs> they were like, oh shit, I guess. <laughs> we need people now. The Canadian government turned to the mounted police as their main source for experienced mounted soldiers, as they were the only ones. Members were given leave from the force for the duration of their service. Combined with the pressure of maintaining or or commitments in the Yukon, this dwindled the police numbers in remaining er, territories to only 682 men by 1900. Commissioner Hirschmeyer recruited and commanded a group of 144 mounted police volunteers who made up almost half of the new 2nd Battalion of the Canadian Mounted Rifles. Many of the other volunteers were also ex-policemen. Shortly after their arrival in South Africa, Hirschmeyer was retired from duty because they found that he was unfit for duty. And when he complained to the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister removed him from the police altogether. <laughs> Just like, get the fuck out of here. The mounted police influenced the creation of other imperial units during the conflict. Lord Strathcona, the Canadian High Commissioner in London, raised a unit of mounted infantry modeled on the force, believing it to be the particularly suitable for taking on Boer scouting parties. This would become known as Lord Strathcona's horse, and they are based in Edmonton currently, at the Steel Barracks named after. Their first commanding officer, Sam Steele, um, Steele was the third officer ever sworn into the newly formed Northwest Mounted Police when it or when it was made, created. Yeah. <laughs> My brain just stopped working for a second. And I was like, uh, <laughs> verbs, verbs were gone. Yeah, he entered as a full staff constable when he joined back in the day. Uh, he led recruits on the 1874 March West. Somehow didn't die. And we, he returned to Fort Gary, which is president present day Winnipeg. I just almost called it President Winnipeg. Present-day present Winnipeg, he became a staff sergeant major, which meant he was responsible for drilling all new recruits. In 1878, he was given his own command at Fort Capel, Northwest Territories, which is in modern day, the modern-day Capel Valley, Saskatchewan. Always the soldier, he had leapt at the opportunity to be the first commanding officer of Lord Strathcona's horse, the new cavalry unit. Steele did not, however, like what he was ordered to do by the British when he was in South Africa, which included burning down towns, farms, and homesteads, killing livestock of Boer families, and moving the populace into concentration camps. South African Constabulary was created in October 1900 to police the recaptured territories, and it mirrored the mounted police. So the Lord Strathcona's horse and this South African Constabulary both actually wore the Stetson of the RCM, of the Northwest Mounted Police. They wore the same Stetson, and the Lord Strathcona's horse also wore the same boots, eventually, as the, as the Northwest Mounted Police. So the South African Constabulary um, incorporated 42 members of the Mounted Police, and one of its divisions was commanded by Steele. In 1904, the Crown renamed the force the Royal Northwest Mounted Police to honor its contributions to the Boer War. And then throughout the late, eight, oh my God, the late 1880s, the Mounted Police faced mounting criticism through a sequence of allegations known as the Hirschmer Scandals. Lawrence Hirschmer, like I, I've butchered his name for the last five minutes, um, had been appointed commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police, partially because of his positive reputation within the Indian Department, but also because of his conservative sympathies and his family links to Prime Minister MacDonald. Nepotism. <laughs> Hirschmer's brother, William, also a Mountie superintendent, had arrested a newspaper owner, Nicholas Davin, for public drunkenness several years prior. And apparently motivated by a desire for revenge, Davin began pursuing a vendetta against Lawrence when he became commissioner, when Lawrence became commissioner. And Davin was helped by another newspaper publisher, who also apparently had beef. 
Hirschmer was an unpopular, or wasn't popular amongst many of his officers, and Davin published their critiques of him, along with accusations of a wide range of misdemeanors. The government ordered an, ordered an investigation, followed by a judicial inquiry, both of which cleared Hirschmer of any serious charges, but the force's reputation had suffered pretty seriously, and then he ended up just getting removed altogether when he went to Africa. <laughs> When Canada entered World War I in 1914, the government became concerned that national security might be threatened, either by immigrants who still sympathize with their home countries in Central Europe, or from citizens of the United States with German or Irish backgrounds crossing the border. New wartime secrecy regulations were implemented, including censorship of the press. The responsibility for tackling the enforcement of this was assigned to the Federal Dominion Police, which were essentially like the other half of what became the RCMP, but they had limited resources, and in many cases, just delegated to local police forces, which in, in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan, just meant that the mounted police became in, in, in charge of this shit. <laughs> um, they initially focused on the activities of immigrants and carrying out border security, but they quickly widened their operations. Unlike in the Boer War, the mounted police were at first forbidden to volunteer for military duty abroad, and the size of the force was instead temporarily increased to 1,200 men. The force investigated rumors of conspiracies associated with the central powers, but since most mounted police did not have links within the relevant ethnic communities, they used secret agents and informants to gather intelligence, supported by undercover officers. Tensions grew between temperance campaigners and soldiers over the implementation of uh, liquor laws during this period as well in Canada. Police barracks in Calgary were attacked in October 1916 by a crowd of over 200 soldiers and civilians who were trying to release six soldiers who were arrested for alcohol offenses. The building was destroyed and one police officer was shot and several more were injured. The demands of the new force's security role combined with traditional policing was stretching it pretty thin. So in response, provincial forces in Alberta and Saskatchewan were created, which then allowed for the closure of over 80 mounted police uh, depots or posts, essentially. It was argued by the new commissioner that the force had now had largely, quote, finished the work for which it was called into existence and proposed that the mounted police should instead focus on supporting the Canadian Expeditionary Force in Europe, threatening to resign if the police were not allowed to fight. Despite complaints from the military, there were no longer any requirements for cavalry on the Western Front. A force of 738 mounted police were sent overseas in May 1918 to form a squadron, and a further 186 were deployed to Siberia to support British forces engaged in the Russian Civil War. By, the by December, there were only 303 mounted police left in Canada, primarily focused on border protection, and the intelligence networks created earlier in the war were allowed to wind down. Conscription was introduced in Canada in the final year of the war, which was accompanied by labor shortages and pressures for social change and rapid unionization of the remaining workforce. Pretty tumultuous time for, I mean, most places in the world. There was also a pandemic happening. Yeah. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, so guys, you guys catch last episode? <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. While concerns about the central powers declined, fears grew in government at the end of 1918 that the new Bolshevik government in Russia might be covertly orchestrating a campaign of strikes across Canada. In response, Prime Minister Robert Borden created a public safety branch led by politician Charles Cahan. Cahan envisaged transforming this organization into a much larger secret service similar to the Bureau of, the Bureau of Investigation in the U.S., but he soon fell out with Borden and ultimately resigned. Meanwhile, Commissioner Perry had put forward three options for the future of the mounted police. The force could be absorbed into the Canadian military, the remit of the force could be reduced to simply policing the far north, or the force could be assigned a much wider role in public and secret policing across the whole of Canada. Perry promoted the third option, and Arthur uh, Megan, the acting Minister of Justice, therefore proposed merging the mounted police and the Dominion police, 
So the Dominion Police, I'm just going to briefly explain what the Dominion Police was. It was formed on May 22nd, 1868 as a federal police force with jurisdiction anywhere in Canada following the assassination of MP Thomas Darcy McGee. It was assigned to protect government buildings, including Parliament Hill, provide protection to government leaders, act as a secret service countering the Fenian raids, enforcing counterfeiting and human trafficking laws, and enforcing the laws defined in the Public Works Peace Preservation Act of 1869. That's literally all that you need to know about the. What's wrong? He wants to go back outside and chase that gopher. So the RNWMP started facing massive disapproval amongst industrial workers. Strikers were often arrested by the force for deserting their employment as defined in the Masters and Servants Act. So yeah, you could literally be arrested for not going to work. What a time, huh? Yeah. Organized labor in Canada at this time was weak, with the legal rights of trade unions limited. The poor working conditions in the industrial sector led to an increase in lockdowns and strikes into the 20th century, often resulting in violent and armed intervention by government authorities. The Royal Northwest Mounted Police was commonly was most commonly dispatched due to it being cheaper than using a militia. This Even is a they really common theme. This was actually the entire purpose of their or like the, I mean that goes back to like the entire creation is like oh if we create this police force it'll be cheaper than sending the military to patrol yeah. the border. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the success of the Russian Revolution, labor unrest in Canada increased in 1919. With um, these disputes called for gov the government to address the high unemployment and inflation, low wages and poor working conditions. Labor leaders across Can Western Canada joined forces and created the one big union in Calgary, Alberta. The management and laborers of the building and metal trades were unable to come to an agreement, leading to a call of a general strike in May 1919. 30,000 workers walked out of their jobs within the first few hours of the call. Those opposed to the strike organized the Citizens Committee in Winnipeg, claiming the strike to be the work of, quote-unquote, alien scum, end quote, attempting to begin a revolution. The federal government quickly acted by sending two cabinet ministers to Winnipeg. However, they met with the Citizens Committee and not the strikers. The ministers advised the government order federal employees back to work or they risk losing their jobs. On June 17th, the government issued warrants for the arrest of 10 strike leaders. In response, 25,000 strikers demonstrated in Winnipeg on June 21st. Mayor Charles F. Gray read the riot act to the demonstrators and called on the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. The force rode into the streets on horseback and charged the crowd, indiscriminately attacking strikers and even firing their sidearms into the crowd. Two strikers were killed, over 30 were injured, and over 80 were arrested. The incident is now known as Bloody Sunday. The same day, federal troops entered and occupied the city in order to restore order. As a result of the clash, the strike committee announced an end to the strike for 11 a.m. on June 26. The strike leaders were tried for seditious acts. Most were sentenced to a year, while R.B. Russell was sentenced to two years, and Roger Bray was given a six-month sentence. 
Popular opinion for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police decreased in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday due to the brutality the officers committed. Even Commissioner Ellisworth Bowen Perry criticized the response and recommended the government form a new police force. What a name, huh? Ellsworth? Yep, Ellsworth. Perry recommended the Royal Northwest Mounted Police merge with the Dominion Police to form a larger federal police force. He made the argument the Mounties were larger, more experienced, better prepared militarily, and capable of performing secret intelligence work. Furthermore, they were not under Union influence and still had a significant popularity with the general public. As part of a response to Perry's recommendations and the aftermath of the general strike, Prime Minister Robert Borden brought forward an amendment to the policing legislation in November 1919, aiming to merge the Royal Northwest Mounted Police and the Dominion Police. The legislation was passed and came into effect on February 1st, 1920. This officially formed the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. One of the earliest assignments of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was to collect intelligence on organizations and groups perceived to be a threat to Canadian security, which is a very vague... <laughs> it's a vague mandate. <laughs> yeah. Of particular interest was the newly formed Communist Party of Canada due to the early Red Scare following the Bolsheviks' rise to power in the Soviet Union. RCMP officer John Leopold, who was going under the alias Jack Aselvein, posed as a member of the Communist Party of Canada during the 1920s, becoming the first secretary in Regina. He personally chaired meetings, recruited new members, distributed pamphlets, etc., all while gathering information on the party's workings and its members. He was so good, he became a, a quote-unquote marked man by Western police forces and the RCMP. Only five others in the force knew his real identity. That's how good he was. Yeah. His identity was discovered in 1927 by chance when one of the organizers was having a casual conversation at a bar in Los Angeles. When the man he was speaking to revealed he used to know someone in Regina who randomly disappeared and then reappeared under a different name. It was John Leopold. After some months of their own investigation, the Communist Party expelled him. He received death threats throughout 1928 and was forced to be stationed in Fort Simpson, Northwest Territories, for his own safety. In July 1931, a riot took place in Stratford, Ontario. As a result, Attorney General William Price ordered a raid on the home of Tim Buck, the first secretary of the Communist Party, along with the party headquarters. Eleven were arrested and put on trial for seditious conspiracy. Leopold was the one who testified against the men for three days, presenting evidence of the communist, that the Communist Party was indeed linked to the Internationale in Moscow. He also showed pamphlets explaining the party's use of code, ciphers, secret inks, couriers, and even was providing street fighting training to a defense corps. The jury found all members guilty and they were served between two and five years. Now, I'm, not, I'm no fan of the Communist Party, so I don't feel too bad for them. And also, like, kudos to John Leopold for being so, like, that good at his job. Yeah. But this is where, obviously, I do not agree with what's about to happen. During the Great Depression, one in nine Canadians found themselves unemployed. 
Prime Minister R.B. Bennett implemented the federal relief camps under the jurisdiction of the Department of National Defense for whatever reason in order to have single unemployed men to work on public works, including road construction, for 20 cents per day. I don't understand why the National Defense needs to be in charge of infrastructure, but here we were. Unhappy with the low wages and the poor living conditions these men were subjected to. And let me tell you, it was crap. Yeah. I think Hoover, Hooverville's in the States were... Well, they weren't. They were better because they weren't police states yeah. at the same time. So the workers under the leadership of Arthur Slim Evans united to form the Workers' Unity League, or the WUL. The league became affiliated with Red International of Labor Unions a.k.a. pro Fern, and also helped establish the Relief Camp Workers' Union. Both the League and the Union were closely associated with, surprise, surprise, the Communist Party of Canada. In December 1934, a strike was held after several workers walked out of their camps and de demonstrated in Vancouver. The protests lasted two months with the government promising a commission tasked with addressing the complaints. When the commission never came to fruition, the workers once again went on strike on April 4th, 1935. During the second strike, workers occupied an HBC store, which is ironic, a museum and library, and hosted a May Day parade that consisted of over 20,000 people through Stanley Park. The Vancouver municipal government denied the well-being of the strikers was their responsibility, causing frustration amongst the demonstrators over the perceived lack of momentum, and thus Evans and the others decided to take up their grievances with Ottawa directly. On June 3rd, a thousand strikers took over several freight trains and began the journey to Ottawa. They made stops in Calgary, Medicine Hat, Swift Current, and Moose Jaw. These are literally, like, there's photos of these people, like, riding these freight cars like in the freight cars and on top of the freight cars and like it's a it's a weird it's the most interesting strike i've ever heard of ever and it was called the on to ottawa trek when the train ar trains arrived in regina the strikers were informed their railway access was now denied under orders of the prime minister after negotiations with the federal government eight Trekkers, as they were known as, were allowed to continue to Ottawa for a meeting with Bennett directly. The remaining Trekkers remained in, Regi in the Regina Exhibition Grounds. Their food and accommodations were supplied by the provincial government and sympathetic citizens. Negotiations in Ottawa began on June 17th with Evans and other seven other routes representing the Trekkers and Bennett, Minister of Railways and Canals Robert Magnon, and Minister of Agriculture Robert Weir, representing the government. The negotiations broke down on June 22nd when Bennett denounced Evans as an embezzler. In retaliation, Evans called Bennett a liar and a shouting match began. The delegation was soon escorted from the, from the building and the negotiations ended. Evans and the others returned to Regina and announced the trek had disbanded. A rally was organized for July 1st, hoping to gain further support from the locals. However, Bennett had ordered the leaders of the Trekkers to be placed into custody. A group of Regina police and RCMP constables converged on the crowd in order to place Evans and the other leaders under arrest. Angry Trekkers retaliated and a melee began. 
Checkers attacked with rocks and makeshift clubs, while RCMP fired tear gas and live rounds. Furthermore, they blocked the route back to the stadium and much of the surrounding area, trapping people within the, within the riot zone. The riot lasted until around midnight. One Regina constable was killed and a couple dozen rioters, police, and bystanders were injured. In the aftermath, the provincial government aided the Trekkers in returning to Vancouver. The riot was a blow for Bennett's reputation and is seen as one of the causes for his loss in the 1935 federal election. Furthermore, support for the CPC increased. The incident painted the RCMP as federal strike breakers, causing controversy and criticism. Saskatchewan Premier Gardner accused the police, particularly the RCMP, of triggering the riot while he was in negotiations with the Trekkers. He had earlier warned preventing the strikers from leaving Regina would result in a riot, and lo and behold... Anger also arose after several of the Trekkers' leaders called Gardner following the riot, and the two agreed to meet. When the RCMP caught wind of this, he was arrested and held for interrogation. However, they were, they were released and met with the Premier soon after and were soon allowed to, re to return. Tragedy would strike the RCMP in October the same year. On October 5th, near Pelly, Saskatchewan, RCMP Constable John Shaw and Benito Constable William Wainwright were transporting three armed robbery suspects to the Pelly detachment. Using smuggled knives and a 32 caliber revolver, the suspects attacked the officers and ended up crashing the car into a ditch. The men looted the car, then fled, leaving the officers to die. A local farmer found the bodies two days later. A dispatch of the murders and descriptions of the suspects were sent across Western Canada the same day, with most of the Alberta detachments receiving the news by 7 p.m. At around 7.30 p.m., the suspects pulled into a gas station east of Canmore to fill up, which I believe, based on the description, is Dead Men's Flats. I'm pretty sure. Sounds about right. The station owners recognized the men and contacted the police, saying the men were headed west. By this point, the suspects were running out of money and were becoming increasingly disorganized. They ended up robbing a vehicle of, its, of the occupants' money and valuables. The truck's owner, C.T. Scott, drove ahead to Banff and informed an RCMP checkpoint that he had just been robbed and the men were just behind him. Sergeant Thomas Wallace and Constable George Scotty Harrison approached the suspect's vehicle when it arrived when two shots struck both officers through the windshield. A brief shootout began, but both officers had been mortally wounded. Despite the injury, Harrison shot out the car's headlights before losing, losing consciousness. Wallace continued to engage the suspects until he was out of ammo and then collapsed as the suspects fled into the bush. Officers G.E. Combe and Ray Campbell pursued the suspects into the, into the woods, and Combe caught a glimpse of one of the men hiding. He fired one shot, killing the suspect instantly. The next evening, the local detachment was joined by a posse of armed citizens to search for the remaining suspects. The weather was beginning to get worse with rain and snow. However, ex-RCMP William Nish spotted the two suspects and raised his weapon. He ordered the men to surrender, but was met by gunfire as a response. After an, the, an exchange, one suspect was mortally wounded and collapsed into unconsciousness. During a lull in the gunfire, Nish spotted a, the glint of a suspect's rifle and fired in the direction, also wo mortally wounding that suspect. Both suspects died later that day. Wallace and Harrison died after being transported to Calgary. 
All the murdered officers were given full military and even a Masonic funeral procession for Wallace and Harrison. The citizens of Banff and the surrounding areas refused to allow the suspects to be buried within their area. Two were buried in unmarked graves near Morley, while a third was claimed by his family and also buried in an unmarked grave in Saskatchewan. This incident was the deadliest RCMP incident in the history of the force until 2005. It was the first like major incident I believe that the RCMP faced like as the RCMP I mean. Yeah. Cuz the way I see it the RCMP and the Northwest Mounted Police are two different organizations. They are. Um, but it's like I guess it's but that's like I get yes obviously. But at the same time like it's kind of weird to talk about that then because then it almost like uh, it isn't really the right word but like it separates the RCMP from like their whole actual history. Cause yeah, no, it's, so it's, like that's like the difficult part about like talking about the yeah. RCMP is that it's like they are different from the Northwest Mounted Police. So like yes, this is the first incident in that sense, but like it's like a slippery slope to say that they're not the same organization. Yeah, kind no, of thing. I know. And you I know mean. you're not asserting that, but no. just in general, like that's one of the things that's been like weird about talking about it is like yeah. not that many people do try and separate them because yeah because they are the RCMP is pretty proud of its Northwest Mounted Police history so like yeah I mean it's part of the glam like the surge and like the whole uniform came from the Northwest Mounted Police so like it's so he had a pretty big part of their identity and image yeah. I'm now going to refer to talk about the probably the most famous RCMP incident in its history in its history I would say um, other, yeah. Other, I don't know. Like other. Yeah, honestly, I think Merthorpe honestly is just as. Well, yeah, I get, but I mean, in terms of like the RCMP being like this is a, a badass moment oh, of oh, theirs, oh, kind sorry, of. I misunderstood what you were talking about. No, no, this is like a badass moment of theirs. What I I'm about to talk about. Yeah. About. Um, so on July 9th, 1931, a man arrived at Fort McPherson, Northwest Territories, near the border with the Yukon. RCMP Constable Edgar Millen spoke with him briefly, and he identified himself as Albert Johnson. He was described by Millen as having some sort of Scandinavian accent, clean-shaven, and had plentiful funds for supplies. However, Johnson had little interest in speaking, coming across as rude and dismissive. Whatever he was up there for, he had no interest in speaking with other people. Johnson ventured to the banks of the Mackenzie River Delta and built a small cabin at Rat River. People were suspicious of Johnson as he had not applied for a trapping license despite living so remotely. Basically, during that time and even now, having a trapping license is like living out there is essential to survive. His background prior to relocating to the north was also widely like nobody knew. That December, a native man issued a complaint to the RCMP detachment at Aklavik, saying his traps had been tampered with. He had found them tripped and hanging in the trees. He suspected Johnson as the perpetrator since he was the only other person in that area. Two constables, Alfred King and Joe Bernard, made the 97-kilometer journey to the cabin to question Johnson over the accusations. However, Johnson outright refused to answer and even covered his window with a sack so the officers could not look within the cabin. The officers felt there was nothing more they could do and decided to receive a search warrant and more men. Five days later, King and Bernard returned with two others and again attempted to speak with Johnson. As before, Johnson never responded and ignored them. 
King decided to enforce the search warrant and began breaking in the door. Suddenly, Johnson fired through it, striking King and knocking him down. A firefight ensued before the officers retreated with the wounded King back to Eklebik. A nine-man posse was organized, along with a 42 sled dog team and 20 pounds of dynamite. The men surrounded the cabin but found their dynamite had frozen, forcing them to thaw the sticks in their coats. One charge was thrown which landed on the cabin and exploded. This caused a partial collapse and the officers made a charge. However, to their shock, Johnson fired back at them, causing them to have to retreat and take cover again. A 15-hour standoff began in minus 40 degree Celsius weather. Throwing several... which like the with, worst standoff Yeah, ever. oh my god. Although you're kind of like in that adrenaline rush, I guess, because you're being like you're being shot at. They're throwing sticks of dynamite at him. But no matter what, it did not work. They finally just bundled bundled a bunch of this dynamites like into one of like one of those big bundles and tossed it, and that exploded. And then there was like a silence, and then Johnson started shooting again. And they're like, "What?" the actual fuck like god damn it by that point the the posse decided to retreat back to Aklavik for reinforcements as they were running low on ammo and like other supplies and were freezing cold reinforcements arrived on january 14th and set and 1932 and set back out to the cabin they found the smoldering ruins abandoned johnson having slipped away while they were gone it was discovered johnson had a dugout had dug out the floor of his cabin, creating a makeshift bunker, explaining how he survived the dynamite blasts. He also, they also found several holes for which he purposely made so he could point his rifle out of and fire. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's how they were not able to hit him. Wow. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's nuts. A massive search began, and it is actually, I believe, still the largest manhunt in Canadian history. Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. And one group caught up with him on January 30th. After another firefight began, Constable Millen, the only known, only man known to have spoken with Johnson, was struck in the heart and killed. The posse once again was forced to retreat. This is also the only time anyone else had heard Johnson's voice at all as he cackled with laughter at the dying Millen. Soon, local Inuvialuit and Guishin tribespeople joined the manhunt, who provided their knowledge of the area as the best they could and became valuable assets. The RCMP set up positions to block both passes over the Richardson Mountains. To their shock, Johnson had managed to climb a 7,000-foot mountain and vanish. I feel like at this point, nothing should surprise them now. Yeah. Like... I mean, it shouldn't at this point. It shouldn't have been surprising that he just managed to scale a fucking mountain. It's like, yeah. God damn it, man. Yeah. The thing is, they have no idea how he had this knowledge, how he was able. To, I'll get. I'll get to it in a bit. But yeah. like, it's just incredible how he was able to survive. But he's also a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. But the only thing that they really knew is he was heading towards Alaska. Yeah. That's it. Running out of options, the RCMP enlisted the aid of aviator Wilfred Wap May of Canadian Airways to fly overhead and help search for Johnson. This is the, I I don't know if it was the first time ever in history, but I think it was the first time in human, in in world history, an airplane was used in a search of this, like this kind of search. 
On February 14th, Mays spotted footprints along the Eagle River and discovered Johnson had been following the caribou tracks in order to tr trick his pursuers and lose. So he would step within the tracks of the caribou tracks that would conceal his tracks. But now that they figured out what he was doing, yeah. they were able to properly track him better. The posse came around a bend and found Johnson just a few hundred yards in front of them. He attempted to run to the bank of the river, but without snowshoes, he was unsuccessful and kept stumbling. Officers immediately opened fire in another shootout, and Johnson went prone on, on his stomach out in the open. A couple of the officers were wounded, and it is believed Johnson may have been struck a couple times, but continued to fire back. One of the officers managed to flank behind him and fire. The bullet, believed to be the fatal shot, struck Johnson in the buttock, passed through his bowels, and severed several main arteries, killing him almost instantly. May, who was overhead watching, landed the aircraft and airlifted the wounded officer to safety which, and is credited as saving his life. Johnson's body was taken to a barn near, nearby, as nearby as you can be. And, and was examined. His face had frozen in an eerie grimace, which people say it looks like he's... I've seen the pictures of this. Yeah. People say it looks like he's um, kind of smiling. Although when I look at it, it looks like he's grimacing in pain, which mm. kind of satisfies me in a way. I don't like this man. Yeah, he's fine. Um, to this day, Johnson's motivations, his true identity, and even his nationality remain unknown. Nobody has any fucking clue why he did this and why he came up here or where he came from. Oh, good times. And yet, this is pro this is like one of those like this is a Canadian legend, the Mad Trapper. He was he's known as Mad Trapper at Rat River, Albert Johnson. It's insane, and it's it sounds like one of those things that should be happening out in the Wild West. But this is 1932 Canada. I guess it is kind of the wild frontier. That is basically <laughs> but, the wild west. But I mean like in like the 18, like yeah. in the tombstone era kind of yeah, deal. Yeah. So obviously like, yeah, it was, um, RCMP are actually kind of interestingly proud of this bit of their history. I mean, I get why. Oh, me too. Like, I get it. And it's. It's like something to be in part because it is like there is no real nuance to it. It's not like it's a situation where like, you know, it's not like the March West where so you can glorify they can glorify that all they want. It's like, okay, guys, yeah. this is like, no, that's legitimately badass. Yeah. You guys did some cool shit. Like, yeah, this is one. This is someone literally only one person in the area had ever spoken with. Yeah, they had no idea who the fuck he was, why, what he was doing there, how he got like what his obvious like obviously he had like, yeah some major um, survival skills. Apparently he was burning like a shit ton of calories per day because of the conditions in which he was traveling in. Like this, like minus 40 was the, was like the average. Yeah. So like, it's incredible. I would love to do like a whole episode on this saga. Cause that's like, this is just kind of briefly, but it, it it's definitely like, it's insane. Yeah. But this is kind of like what led the RCMP into kind of the, I guess, the mid-modern era. Yeah. Oh, I should... <laughs> it also kind of led to the romanticism of... Like, there was a lot of romanticism at the RCMP yeah. during, like, the 20s and 30s because, like, it's like... 
let's be honest the surge wearing the like look wearing the surge and whatnot it looks cool it, it looks kind of romantic well it does i mean it's hard to not and it is like i mean i even still see the surge and i'm like oh like yeah. it's a nice looking uniform. It is. I also have a thing for riding boots, so there's that. But um, <laughs> like tall riding boots. Um, the pants. Uh... Yeah. The boots, though. <laughs> um, it's it's a thing. Like I I will I think I've admitted this to you, and I'm about to admit it on the podcast. But like those SS boots and yeah, Hugo Boss designed a mean uniform. Yeah. Like unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. filled by mean people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But it was a sexy uniform. But there's like a whole bunch of... You, the song at the end of this episode is called Indian Love Call. And it's from one of these like romanticized movies called Rose Marie. Yeah. Where literally a Mountie and a woman fall in love oh, on yeah. the frontier. And they like, like sing to Honestly, each other. Think of, I think like the best way to think about it is like watching... I actually, and it's kind of funny because last night when I was finishing up some of the stuff um there was turner classic movies uh marathon on and they had uh they played this they had stagecoach and the searchers <laughs> and another john ford john wayne movie and uh good movie great movie and it was so it's kind of funny like watching it but like honestly the best way to think of the rcmp and stuff in lots of ways is like if you basically just think of like yankee cavalry oh god yeah it's the same thing yeah, yeah. in all of those movies and like the rcmp did well, the Northwest Mounted Police at the time did all of the same things that the American cavalry did too in those movies. In those, in, I mean, not exactly, but like the idea of like they were used to manage the First Nations and drive them off their land and all of that stuff. Like it's, yeah, if you totally insert basically what the yeah. American cavalry was or the, yeah, like yeah. U.S. Well, cavalry or Union cavalry is what I was the word I'm looking for. And also like Sam Steele was that like image and like, I'm not kidding, he was a built. He he looks looks the part like he is just like when you yeah when you like see his face you're like yes yeah. you are yeah. a man named Sam Steele who was the first like it was yeah. he led the yes you are this fits this clean fits. shaven chops got yeah. a nice big wide jaw yeah big wide jaw the mustache yeah um and he's and he was built he's a big dude so there that that's the kind of image that they that people had of this I hope he had a big horse <laughs> I'm sure he had a plenty of big horses sure he had a big but, horse yeah so um, so yeah anyways that was in, more in the 30s but in 1950 the rcmp's special branch special was formally established called the special branch and it was formally established to conduct its counterintelligence operations um so prior to that so through all of this obviously post-war cold war big red scare um Can <laughs> yeah. canada's not immune to this by any means we were equally as terrified of the communists as the americans not quite as insane about it, but like equally as terrified. And so the RCMP established a special branch, which is just such an original name. And uh, <laughs> prior to the special branch being created, the branch was a component of the RCMP's criminal investigation branch, <laughs> um, where political security operations and criminal investigations were not distinct prior to 1936. So it was all one thing. The Mounties carried out extensive security service work, especially since they had been reconstituted in 1920. Merging with the Dominion Police definitely expanded that mandate. And obviously most of their work during between the wars was directed at the Communist Party and labor people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the leftists. They were definitely like the Pinkerton agency of... Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. 
so in 1950, they established this bench, the special branch. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1962, the branch was renamed the Directorate of Security and Intelligence, which is a little bit less laughable. And in 1970, it became the RCMP Security Service, which is what it was until it died eventually, <laughs> <laughs> an unceremonious death. In the 1960s, it targeted Quebec nationalists primarily, uh, the FLQ, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But uh, yeah, so the Cold War period in Canada was really interesting, and one of the more sort of interesting things that happened at the time was the Gazenko Affair. So in September 1945, upon learning that he and his family were about to be sent home to the Soviet Union and being dissatisfied with the quality of life and politics in the Soviet Union, Igor Guzenko decided to defect. Uh, Guzenko was a cipher clerk for the Soviet embassy to Canada, and he was based in Ottawa. This is, by the way, taking place three days after the end of World War II, <laughs> for context. Yes, so he's being told he's being sent home, and he's not wild about it. So he decides that he wants to defect. So Guzenko walked out of the embassy door carrying with him a briefcase with Soviet codebooks and deciphering materials. He initially went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but the RCMP officers on duty refused to believe his story. <laughs> he then went to the Ottawa Journal newspaper, but the newspaper's night editor was not interested, idiot, and suggested he go to the Department of Justice, but nobody was on duty when he arrived there. Terrified that the Soviets had discovered his duplicity, he went back to his apartment and hid his family in the apartment across the hall for the night. Guzenko, hidden by a neighbor, watched through the keyhole as a group of Soviet agents broke into his apartment. They began searching through, through his belongings and left only when confronted by the Ottawa police. The next day, Guzenko was able to find contacts in the RCMP who were willing to examine the documents he had removed from the Soviet embassy. Guzenko was transported by the RCMP to the secret World War II Camp X, comfortably distant from Ottawa. And Camp X was the unofficial name of the secret special training school, which was a British paramilitary installation. Yeah. And while he was there, Guzenko was interviewed by investigators from Britain's internal security service, MI5. So the reason that they were interviewed by MI5 instead of MI6 is because Canada was within the British Commonwealth, and so they could use their internal force. They didn't need their, their version of the CIA. Yeah, and he was also interview interviewed by investigators from the uh, FBI, because the CIA hadn't been founded yet. <laughs> Basically, I'm sure the CIA existed, he would have been uh, interrogated by them too. It has been alleged that though the RCMP expressed interest in Guzenko, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King initially wanted nothing to do with him. Even with Guzenko in hiding under RCMP protection, King reportedly pushed for a diplomatic solution to avoid upsetting the Soviet Union, who was still their wartime ally. Again, the war ended three days earlier, and um, ultimately, ostensibly, their friend, I guess. Documents reveal that King, who was then 70 and definitely weary from leading the country for six years <laughs> during a war, was aghast when Norman Robertson, his undersecretary for external affairs, and his assistant, H.H. Wrong, what a name, actually have your last name be Wrong, <laughs> yeah. informed him on the morning of September 6, 1945, that a, quote, terrible thing had happened. Gozenko and his wife Svetlana, told, they told him, had appeared at the office of Justice Minister Louis St. Laurent with documents unmasking Soviet perfidy, so... Uh, basically a Soviet spy ring on Canadian soil. Quote, it was like a bomb on top of everything else, King wrote. King's diaries assembled after his death were missing a single volume for November 10th to December 31, 1945, according to Library and Archives Canada. So, you know, that would have been really helpful to have, but here we are. Yeah. Robertson told the Prime Minister that Guzenko was threatening suicide, but King was adamant that his government could not get involved, even if Guzenko was apprehended by Soviet authorities. Robertson ignored King's wishes and uh, authorized granting asylum to Gazenko and his family on the basis that their lives were in danger, which is definitely true. Yeah. They had been taken back by Soviet authorities. They'd have ended up in Siberia really fucking fast. They would have found a way to make the planes fly faster. <laughs> yeah. 
In February of 1946, news spread that a network of Canadian spies under the control of the Soviet Union had been passing classified information to the Soviet government. Much of the information taken then is public knowledge now, and the Canadian government was much less concerned with the information stolen, but more of the like idea that there was a spy ring than anything else. They didn't really care about the information, they cared about the fact that it was happening, which is obviously terrifying. Canada played an important part of, in the early research with nuclear bomb technology, Canada along with the UK being part of the Manhattan Project. Um, and that kind of vital information can be dangerous to Canadian interests in the hands of other nations, obviously. Gruzenko's defection, or defection ushered in the modern area of Canadian security intelligence in many ways. The evidence provided by Guzenko led to the arrest of 39 suspects, including Agatha Chapman, whose apartment at 282 Somerset Street West was a favorite evening rendezvous. A total of 18 were eventually convicted of a variety of offenses. Among those convicted were Fred Rose, who was the only communist member of parliament in the Canadian House of Commons, Sam Carr, the Communist Party's national organizer, and scientist Raymond Boyer. Chapman was later acquitted. The judge in her case announced that, quote, no case has been made out, and as far as this trial is concerned, the accused is dismissed. A Royal Commission of Inquiry to investigate espionage, headed by Justices Robin uh, Tasharow and Roy Kellogg, conducted into the Guzenko affair and his evidence of a Soviet spying in Canada. It also alerted other countries around the world, such as the United States and the United Kingdom, that Soviet agents had almost certainly infiltrated their nations as well. Guzenka provided many vital leads, which assisted greatly with the ongoing espionage investigations in Britain and North America in general. The documents he handed over exposed numerous Canadians who were spying for the Soviet Union. A clerk at the External Affairs, a Canadian Army captain, and a radar engineer working at the National Research Council were arrested for espionage. A spy ring of up to 20 people passing information to the Soviets led by the Communist Party MP Fred Rose was also exposed. In the United States, the FBI tracked down a spy Soviet spy ring, Ignacy Witsak, at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Guzenko and his family were given another identity by the Canadian government, obviously out of fear of Soviet reprisal, and Guzenko was assigned to live for the rest of his life as George Brown. <laughs> Very little is known about his life afterwards, but it's generally understood that they lived a fairly middle-class existence around Toronto and raised eight children. He was actually involved in a defamation case against McLean's because they wrote a libelous article yeah, about yeah. him. Um, but the case was eventually heard by the Supreme Court of Canada, and he eventually did write two books, which uh, the second one, The Fall of a Titan, which is actually a, no a fiction, or is a novel, won the Governor General's Award in 1954. And Gozenko has appeared on television a few times to promote his books and air grievances with the RCMP, always with a hood over his head. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, fam it's kind of famous, and uh, it's definitely iconic. He yeah. was also the first ever person named Canadian Newsmaker of the Year. He died in 1982, and in 2002, Federal Heritage Minister Sheila Copps designated the Gazenko Affair an event of national historic significance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Almost international significance as well, I would say. Well, it's, yeah, I mean. Well, there's my dad. I was, I've talked with my dad because my dad's super fascinated with the Gazenko Affair. Yeah. And he says that he thinks that this, that, that event might have been the start of the Cold War. Well, I mean, it's certainly, well, it's hard to determine. The Cold War already started. Yeah, so it's like, kind of hard to determine like a start, but like that I was, was the say, actual. I mean, the Cold War had already started, yeah. but I would say that it definitely contributed heavily to it and definitely, I imagine, shaped, well, not I imagine, guarantee, it shaped the policy, the Cold War policies of nations like Canada and the United States. Like, you can definitely draw a line. I mean, the fact that King was already 
like King was definitely aware of Soviet reprisal, so they protected him, but also like a lot of Canadians were, this led to like a huge um, campaign by the RCMP of arresting people yeah. pretty much indiscriminately because yeah. they thought they were communist and <laughs> ruining a ton of lives. Yeah. Um, and the, obviously this happened in the United States too with the McCarthy yeah. show trials. And uh, so, but essentially all the same things happened in Canada that was just carried out by the RCMP because yeah. they were the security force at this time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely valid to say it was the start of the Cold War because it was a big part of it. Another thing that kind of happened to the RCMP, which is another kind of crazy sad event, and it's actually Canada's worst random mass murder, the Shell Lake murder. So on August 15th, 1967, uh, Victor Hoffman who was 21 years old at the time, had been released from a mental hospital just three weeks and had just been released from a mental hospital three weeks before, before entered the Peterson's farm armed with a 22 caliber Browning pump action repeater rifle. He then proceeded to shoot all but one of the members of the Peterson family, seven of them being children, at close range around the four-room house. According to police, 28 shots were fired in total, of which 27 found their target. Mr. Peterson was shot in the kitchen while his wife Evelyn and her one-year-old baby were found in the backyard. The six other children were shot while sleeping in their bedrooms. Their ages ranged from 2 to 17 years old. Phyllis Peterson, then four years old, was the lone survivor of the massacre. She was sleeping under the bedclothes between her two sisters and was not noticed by Hoffman. However, Hoffman later declared that he spared her because, quote, she had the face of an angel. Their bodies were discovered by Wildrew Lang. Never seen that name before, Wildrew. Um, by Wildrew Lang, who was to help Mr. Peterson with farm duties later that morning. He had to travel six kilometers to the next telephone post before he could report the incident to the police. The police immediately started an extensive manhunt on the surroundings of the house. The Peterson's oldest daughter, Kathy Peterson Hill, who was then the age of 19, was living in British Columbia at the time, so she is like the other remaining survivor of that family. On August 19, 1967, Hoffman, Hoffman was arrested by the RCMP without putting up any resistance. He was found at his parents' home in Liask about... 65 kilometers southwest of Shell Lake. After his arrest, he told the police that he had fought the devil before the murders and described him as being, quote, tall, black, and having no genitals. He was remanded to a mental hospital in North Battleford where he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Hoffman was found not guilty by reason of insanity on capital murder charges in February 1968. During the trial, Crown Prosecutor Serge Kujawa called Hoffman the craziest man in Saskatchewan. He was put under, under the custody of the Provincial Health Ministry and sent to a mental institution. He remained most of the time in an Ontario-based institution until December 2001 when he was granted supervised access to the towns of Penetagonish, Port, Mac Port, Mac or Port McNeil, and Mid Midland, Ontario. This decision was controversial, obviously, since the hospital was only required to inform the, only required to inform the local police of Hoffman's release. Uh, Canadian journalist Peter Tarr... Tabman wrote a book about the murders in 1992 and had the chance to interview Hoffman several times. According to him, Hoffman felt no guilt about the murders and reported that he still saw the devil that compelled him to commit them. Hey. Yeah. There have obviously been some other massacres in Canada too, but another import, obvious important uh, milestone. In 1969, Hartley Gosline became the first black Mountie that the RCMP ever uh, had. Although, there were a few names put forward in consideration during the 1940s, and they were found eligible on paper, but they never became Mounties. Um, the RCMP officially did not provide confirmation as to why, but 
Sergeant Craig Smith wrote a book on black officers and the history of black officers in the RCMP. And in this book, he found, well, doing the research, he found a uh, primary source which suggested that RCMP Commissioner S.T. Wood wanted the black men to, quote, be afforded the opportunity of writing the educational test with hope that we shall find that they have not successfully passed as to definitely refuse them. The opportunity of applying on account of their color would raise the question of policy. So, yeah, Gosline didn't experience any of that when he went through. Um, he applied to become a Mountie in 1968, and... According to him, he was either not subjected to or was not aware of such of any of those loopholes because he became a Mountie in 1969. But his career definitely was fraught with some, like, well, definitely some, some racism within the force. He was once told by a corporal that he had better be white by 6 a.m. the next morning. And that actually became the title of the book that Sergeant Craig Smith wrote. Because he says when he went through depot in Regina. Uh, there wasn't a single black person on the walls of the forces training depot when he joined in 1997. And, you know, there were black Mounties. <laughs> yeah. So Gosline has reflected in since. He, he said that for the most part, he didn't really have any issues, but he did start noticing them was when he kept getting asked if he would be interested in being on the drug squad as an undercover agent or as an undercover cop. And he had no interest in being on the drug squad, but he kept saying no. And so as a result, it actually turned into a negative note in his file, which obviously has impacts on people all the time. But the effect, the note, um, the note basically said that uh, he wanted special treatment because of his color when really he had no desire to work in the drug squad. Yeah, he just wanted to be a regular cop. He just wanted to be a regular cop, but they were like, oh, you're black, we could use you. He eventually quit after working in the security service. He just kind of got fed up with all of the... Um, Bullshit. Basically, what happened is he got transferred to Edmonton in an all-white detachment, and he caught two of his colleagues, colleagues calling him the N-word, and then after that, they just did it more discreetly. And he also was written up for a bunch of just, like, really minor stupid things, like wearing an older issue some coat to a game when white officers did the same thing, and mm. they weren't reprimanded. So he got sick of feeling like he was being singled out, and he left. The RCMP... Did I, we got this information out of a news story done by Global News, and the RCMP did not answer, refused to answer any questions about anything for the article, basically. So there was that. Uh, to date, there are only 300 black Mounties, which is less than 2% of the entire police force. So yeah, that was a really big, big deal. Um, he's, Hartley Gosling is still alive, still in Edmonton, still around. Um, and I definitely actually really want to check out that book that was talked about as well. Yeah, it sounds like a really Didn't good Didn't really book. have time to read it for this, but I'd yeah. like to. But probably the most important event of the 1960s and 70s in Canada was the October crisis. Um, Stay tuned to the season finale. <laughs> yeah. So I won't talk too much here. I'll just kind of go over it a little here. But um, basically what happened, the FLQ, which is an independence group, a radical independence group in uh, Quebec, emerged in 1963 to... Um, further their separatist stance, I guess. Um, and they vowed to use any means necessary, including violence, and they carried out almost 200 crimes, including robberies, bombings, and other various things, um, from its inception to its last days. Their armed members kidnapped British ambassador James... Right? Ambassador? James Cross, yeah. Yeah, James Cross. Uh, while members of their cell took part... or took Pierre Laporte as he played with his nephew on his front lawn. The kidnappers' demands, communicated in a series of public messages, included the freeing of a number of convicted or detained FLQ members, half-million-dollar ransom, and the broad... So cute, half-million dollars. And the broadcast of the FLQ manifesto. 
Uh, the manifesto, which was a diatribe against the established authority, was read on Radio Canada, and on the 10th of October, the Quebec Minister of Justice offered safe passage abroad to the kidnappers in return for the release of Cross. On the same day, a second FLQ cell, acting independently, had kidnapped Pierre Laporte. So what this actually really meant was that the government responded swiftly and enacted the War Measures Act. So famously, we'll play the clip actually like when we do the real episode on the October crisis, the prime minister was asked a question regarding uh, how far he would go to stop the FLQ and whether or not he'd put soldiers on Parliament Hill. And Trudeau responded by saying, just watch me. So on October 15th, the Quebec government formally requested assistance from the Canadian government to supplant the local police force. And on October 16th, the federal government proclaimed the existence of a state of apprehended insurrection under the War Measures Act. Under the emergency regulations, the FLQ was outlawed as membership became a criminal act. Normal liberties were suspended and arrests and detentions were authorized without charge. Over 450 persons were detained in Quebec, most of whom were eventually released without the laying or hearing of charges. On October 17th, the body of Pierre Laporte was found in the trunk of a car left near St. Hubert Airport. In early December of 1970, police discovered the holding cell of James Cross, and the force negotiated his release in return for a safe conduct to Cuba for the kidnappers, the best known of whom uh, were Mark Carboneau and Jacques Langteau. Langteau. And some of their family members, of course. Almost four weeks later, the Chenier cell was located and its members arrested subsequently to be tried and convicted for murder and kidnapping. Of these, Paul Rose the Francis, and Francis Simard received the heaviest sentences, life in prison for the death of Laporte. Emergency Because by this time, capital punishment was banned in Canada. Emergency regulations under the War Measures Act were replaced in, 19, October, in November 1970 by similar regulations under the Public Order Temporary Measures Act, which lapsed on April 30th, 1971. This was really controversial because or the War Measures Act itself was extremely controversial, even though it actually did have a large number of support during the time, yeah. because essentially what this did is it severely limited civil rights for people. The majority of Canadians did support the cabinet's actions, but it was criticized as excessive by Quebec nationalists and just other people who valued their civil rights. Um, yeah, and I mean, people who supported the War Measures Act obviously see the disappearance of terrorism in Quebec as evidence of its success, but when you're allowed to just indiscriminately arrest people, that also happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> but after the crisis, the federal cabinet had gave the... Had gave, um, ambiguous instructions to the RCMP Security Service, which permitted a lot of dubious acts, such as break-ins, thefts, and electronic surveillance, all without warrants. All were condemned as illegal by the Federal Inquiry into Certain Activities of the RCMP by the Keeble Commission in Quebec. And the Federal Minister of Justice in 1970 justified the use of the War Measures Act as a means of reversing, quote, an erosion of the public will in Quebec. According to some, Premier Robert, Robert Barassa similarly conceded that the use of the War Measures Act was intended to rally support to the authorities rather than to confront an apprehended insurrection. But yeah, so the RCMP's role in this essentially was that they were given the green light to hunt everybody that they could essentially to try and find find terrorists and end terrorism. But this is kind of ties into the, the security service in terms of like they, um, they mishandled a number of things throughout their years. And the 1970s was really the peak of that. And uh, yeah. I don't really have much else to say here because we're going to have a whole episode on the October yeah. crisis, so I don't want to yeah, talk too much about it. But basically, the RCMP just went around and like arrested a bunch of people and yeah, they were like pretty much free to bugged everyone's phones and yep did their did their thing yeah, really. And uh, of course, most of this was done by the 
security services, but yeah. I'm going to get to that in a bit. But Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the mid-century for the RCMP. But kind of quickly talk a little bit about women in the force. This is going to be really fast. There isn't really a lot to say, to be honest, um, other than there's just a ton of continued issues. But um, in, 19, in the 1920s, uh, Saskatchewan pathologist Frances Gertrude McGill began providing forensic assistance to the RCMP in their investigations. She helped establish the first RCMP forensic lab in 1937 and later served as its director for several years. In addition to her, her forensic work, McGill also provided training to the new RCMP recruits in forensic detection methods. She retired in 1946 and was appointed honorary surgeon to the RCMP, where she continued to act as a dedicated consultant for the force up until her death in 1959. Um, in 1974, RCMP Commissioner Maurice Nadon announced that the RCMP would accept applications from the women as regular forces of the mem regular members of the force. So Troop 17 was the first group of 32 women at Depot in Regina on September 18th and 19th, 1974 for regular training. The first all-female troop graduated from Depot on March, March 3rd, 1975. Initially, women members wore different uniforms, but eventually they were issued the standard RCMP uniform. All officers are identically attired with two exceptions for women members. The ceremonial dress uniform or walking out order has a long blue skirt and higher heeled slip on pumps plus a black clutch purse. In 2012, however, the RCMP finally began, allow, or began allowing women uh, to wear trousers and boots with all their formal uniforms. The second exception has to do with the maternity uniform, which obviously doesn't really exist for the male members. And yeah, a number of firsts for women were achieved over the preceding decades. Um, in 1981, the first woman, woman was on the musical ride. 1987, the first woman to have a foreign post. In 1990, uh, first woman detachment commander, 1992, first commissioned officer. In 1998, the first assistant commissioner. And in 2006, Beverly Busson was the first woman to hold the position of commissioner in the force, albeit on an interim basis. She served as the interim com commissioner from December 15th, 2006 until July 6, 2007. In March 2018, the first female commissioner, Brenda Lukey, was appointed and in April was sworn in. Yep, and she's still, Is still commissioner. commissioner. The last few years, there's been a lot more discussion about sexism and discrimination against women in the force. Uh, much like every other institution right now um same same with like that's why i didn't spend a ton of time on it which I probably should have but with with hartley gosline is all of the things he's talking about are fairly well known now at this point in terms of every institution goes through this all black folks have to go through this it seems like in every institution and most women have to go through all of this crap in most institutions yeah. like this but there's definitely been a lot of really brave brave voices standing up and speaking out more recently so Congrats to them, or kudos to them. They've definitely faced repercussions, so. Yeah, that's kind of all I really have to say on women in the force. There isn't really a lot of information. I've met Brenda Leckie. Nice. Um, she's a nice woman. Uh, but yeah, she was there when my brother graduated because she wasn't, I don't think, I think she was uh, the acting head of Depo. Yeah. Um, bro, if you're listening to this and haven't angrily turned it off yet, correct me. So by the late 1970s, the controversy surrounding the RCMP security service had become too great to ignore. The division had been accused of conducting several illegal activities during the October crisis in order to pin blame on the FLQ. 
In response, on July 6, 1977, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau established the Royal Commission of Inquiry into Certain Activities of the RCMP, better known as the Macdonald Commission, named after Judge David Cargill Macdonald, who was the commissioner. Here's some of the stuff that they've been accused of. I'm not going to go through all of them because it gets quite lengthy, but here's some of the stuff, like the more interesting stuff. In April 1971, security service agents stole several crates of dynamite from Richelieu explosives. Almost exactly a year later, the RCMP hit four of the crates in Mont Saint-Grégoire in an attempt to frame the FLQ of, of the theft and possession of the explosives. Solicitor General Francis Fox admitted to the incident. It is unclear if the idea was to use the dynamite to actually frame the FLQ or just simply pin them for the possession of the theft. In the end, the dynamite was destroyed after moisture made it unstable and they would have just probably exploded on their own. On October 7th, 1972, the offices of left-wing publishers Agence de Presse Libre de Québec were broken into by a team consisting of three police forces, including the RCMP. The plan was to steal documents and plant them on rival separatist organizations. However, the plan fell apart as the break-in was immediately reported, forcing the group to destroy the documents instead. One particular place of interest for the security service, and this is unusual, was a barn near the U.S. border just south of Montreal. It was discovered that not only was the barn used as a meeting place for the Black Panthers, but was also owned by family members of the people involved in Pierre Laporte's murder. The RCMP became concerned the Black Panthers would teach the FLQ proper firearm and explosives techniques. An operation was ordered by Sergeant Donald McClearly, and four, a four-man team was sent out to the burn down the barn. The first attempt failed after their car broke down and they were forced to be towed back to Montreal. The second attempt, the men got drunk waiting for nightfall in the nearby bar and one of the men caught food poisoning. They continued their attempt to light the barn, but then came a heavy downpour and they simply gave up and left. On their way back, their car broke down again. Probably feeling humiliated and demoralized, they were rather shocked to find out that their, their, their attempt had succeeded and the barn had indeed gone up in flames. This is by far the most bizarre incident that's part of the commission. The commission also uncovered evidence of hundreds of break and, enter and enters committed by agents of the security service. Furthermore, mail tampering was also found to have been committed in abundance. The security service also made great efforts to cover up their blunders because that's basically, they basically failed at most of the shit that they did, that they were accused of in this, in this commission, like that the commission was investigating. The other thing that they did is they stole the personal information of members of the Parti Québécois, the provincial separatist party. And I don't know what they used with them, but they had the private information, so... The findings were released in 1981, filling a document of over a thousand pages long. Several high-ranking officials resigned over the revelations and an unknown number of arrests of former RCMP agents in the security service were made. The commission also recommended the stripping of intelligence responsibilities at the hands of the RCMP with a new independent organization instead. On June 21st, 1984, Parliament passed an act to create the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, better known as CSIS. 
as well as a new governing body known as the Security Intelligence Review Committee and the Office of Inspector General, which has since been disbanded as of 2012. CSIS is responsible for, for, for both the internal and foreign intelligence services and is now a division of, the, of Public Safety Canada. During the 1980s, a group calling themselves Direct Action appeared in the Vancouver metro area. They self-identified as an urban guerrilla anarchist group dedicated to the, to the cause of anti-war, environmentalism, and gender equality movements. They had become disenchanted with the methods of said movements during the 1970s and 80s, deciding to take further actions to spread their message. The group consisted of Julie Belmas, Jerry Hanna, Anne Hansen, Doug Stewart, and Brent Taylor. This led to the media dubbing them later to be known as the Squamish Five. Their activities started off relatively innocent, with their first move vandalizing the Amex mining headquarters after the BC Ministry of the Environment granted the company special exemption from the province's environmental laws. At the same time, the Ministry of the Environment offices were also vandalized by the group. Still unsatisfied, the group began training in the use of firearms and explosives in the north side of Vancouver using abandoned lots. The group also stole a cache of dynamite from a construction company. In order to support themselves and their cause, they resorted to theft and fraud. On May 31, 1982, the group bombed a BC Hydro substation in Dunsmere, resulting in $5 million in damages. No one was injured as it was purposely chosen in, at the right time so nobody would be on site. The site was chosen due to criticism over BC Hydro's uh, hydroelectric project allegedly damaging the ecosystem on Vancouver Island. Five months later, in October, the group clandestinely transported dynamite to Toronto and committed their largest action yet when they bombed the Lytton Systems plant. The site constructed cruise missile parts used by the United States in its many wars. The building was in the process of evacuation when the bomb detonated, resulting in 10 injuries, but thankfully no deaths. When admitting responsibility for the bombing, Direct Act, or the Squamish Five revealed that they did not intend anyone to be injured and the bombs had gone off prematurely. The group also targeted the pornographic video chain Red Hot Video due to the, its stores containing violent pornographies and accusations of selling snuff films. With another anarchist group known as the Women's Fire Brigade, women spelt W-I-M-M-I-N for whatever reason, they, they firebombed three locations in the Vancouver area, resulting in their eventual closure. Interestingly enough, the publicity towards the chain as a result led to public pressure for the government to look into the sale of violent pornography content in Canada, and it was decided the stores should be fined for the graphic content it sold. Red Hot Video went defunct soon after, with its locations either closing or changing names. So they did have some sort of yeah. re result. The actions caught the attention of the RCMP, of course, as it would, and an opera operation to apprehend them was planned. A special task force was assigned to conduct surveillance on the members. It was soon discovered the group planned to travel together up the Sea to Sky Highway for training in one of their at one of their grounds. On January 20th, 1983, the group was en route to their location when they slowed down for construction on the highway. 
Suddenly, the construction workers sprang into action and surrounded the vehicle, taking the five into custody. The workers turned out to be undercover RCMP tactical officers. At trial, only Belmas and Hannah, the youngest of the five, pled guilty. Belmas also made a public apology to those who were injured, claiming that they had not intended to injure anyone and were sorry for any grievances that they caused. The sentences for the five ranged from six years to life. And interestingly enough, Hansen, after hearing she would receive a life sentence, threw a tomato at the judge. <laughs> I had to include that. Yeah, like, how could I not include that? However, as of this, as of now, all members serve their have served their sentences and are now released either on parole or full. Like or or like they're all they're all out of prison. Hansen later wrote a book saying that while she no longer commits such acts, she is not sorry for what she did, and and has also criticized the RCMP. Of course. Mm. On June 22, 1985, at 9 p.m., Air India 182 left Montreal Mirabel International Airport bound for London Heathrow, one of its many stops before it ended up in Mumbai, India. At quarter after eight in the morning, Irish time, 182 disappeared from radar off the coast of Waterville, Ireland. A bomb had detonated in the cargo bay, and all 329 passengers and crew were killed. Until 9-11, this was the single worst terrorist incident in the world. At the time of the disaster, India was plagued by unrest between Sikhs and Hindus. A Sikh separatist movement had taken shape and grown in support. The movement hoped to make an independent state known as Khalistan in the Punjab region of India and Pakistan. The RCMP began an investigation and 135 officers were sent to stores selling Sanyo stereo tuners, a component used in the bomb. They found one man named Inderjit Singh Rayat of Duncan, British Columbia, had purchased a number of tuners and he soon became a suspect. With, the, with this knowledge, the RCMP contacted CSIS and were surprised to discover CSIS had already begun investigating the Sikh separatists in Canada, which included wiretaps and surveillance. They even observed two of the suspects conducting blast tests near Duncan and yet did not inform the RCMP that something was possibly about to take place. Seven suspects were investigated, members of a group known as Babar Khalsa. The investigation lasted well into the 2000s, but only Riyat was convicted after pleading guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 15 years in 2003. The other, others ha had their investigations acquitted due to mismanagement from, in part from the RCMP, but mostly from CSIS and the federal government. The investigation and lack of progress led to controversy and a public commission of inquiry was ordered in 2006, overseen by former Supreme Court Justice John C. Major. In his report, released in June 17, 2010, it concluded a number of errors were conducted by the government, RCMP, and CSIS, which failed to prevent the attack from happening. I definitely, after reading all about this, I definitely believe that this prevent that this attack could have been prevented. Furthermore, two key witnesses who were were murdered in 1995 and 1998. It is believed, with their testimony missing, this led to the eventual acquittal of most of the bombing suspects. Members of the RCMP identified suspect Sirjan Singh Jill was, in reality, a CSIS mole in the organization and was told to pull out of Babar Khalsa after they came to the realization the group was about to act on a major plot. Jill later fled to the UK and has since disappeared. 
The RCMP also conducted an investigation into CSIS over destroyed wiretaps of the suspects. 156 of the two engine 10 wiretaps were erased even after those recorded were named as suspects in the bombing. The RCMP still has their investigation into Air India open as of June 2015 and we may never have answers. Every like few years in Canada they talk about like the Air India come like comes back in the public interest on the news and whatnot because yeah. there's some new development. Yeah. And like there's obviously still people looking for answers. It was a horrible disaster. I think it was Canada's worst aviation incident. So it's, it's horrific, absolutely horrific. In September 2002, Mahir Arar, a dual Syrian Canadian citizen, was returning, home with, was returning home with family to Canada after their vacation in Tunisia. While on layover in JFK Airport, New York, he was detained by authorities and placed in solitary confinement over suspicions he was a terrorist working with Al-Qaeda. He was held for two weeks without access to a lawyer and intensely questioned. After being held, he was deported to Syria despite his Canadian citizenship and passport. For a year, he was imprisoned in Syria, tortured, and left in horrific conditions. Arar's wife, Mania, enlisted the help of Amnesty International with its Canadian Secretary General Alex Nev fronting the campaign. The organization worked tirelessly to pressure the Canadian government to act and bring Arar home. He was released on October 5, 2003 and returned to Canada soon after. Arar's family and Amnesty International called for a public inquiry and the Canadian government launched the Commission of Inquiry into the Actions of Canadian Officials in Relation to Mahir Arar, commissioned by De Justice Dennis O'Connor, hence the name the O'Connor Commission. On September 25, 2004, the RCMP released their findings of an internal investigation concerning the organization's role in Arar's wrathful imprisonment. The, their investigation found the RCMP had provided sensitive information concerning Arar to American authorities. They also found the RCMP liaison officer for the Department of Foreign Affairs was aware of the decision to deport Arar to Syria but did not relay this information to supervisors. Then De Deputy Commissioner Gary Lepke was also named in the investigation as he lobbied the government of Jean Chrétien not to declare Arar, not to state Arar was not involved in terrorist activities due to him still being a, quote, person of great interest, end quote. The RCMP formally apologized for their involvement on September 28, 2006. It also resulted in the resignation of Commissioner Giuliano Zaccardelli due to contradictory statements he made during his testimony to the House of Commons Committee of Public Safety and National Security, particularly the extent of his knowledge regarding the situation at the time it took place. On November 27, 2005, Mubin Sheikh contacted members of an Al-Qaeda-inspired group and was asked to join the group. He, in turn, agreed. In the forest near Orilla, Ontario, 18 individuals ranging from ages 15 to 42 attended a training camp where the ringleader gave speeches rallying those in attendance to strike against Canada. The group, known as the Toronto 18 by the media, planned a series of coordinated attacks on various locations, including Parliament Hill, CSIS headquarters, the Toronto Stock Exchange, and even a plan to behead then behead then Prime Minister Stephen Harper, 
as well as other members of the government. Unbeknownst to the group, Sheikh was a police agent working for CSIS who infiltrated the group and began sharing intelligence to dismantle their plans. In a joint effort between RCMP, CSIS, Ontario Provincial Police, and other police forces, an operation was organized across southern Ontario, primarily in the Greater Toronto Area. On June 2nd, 2006, all 18 were arrested and coordinated raids by the RCMP TAC team, as well as the Toronto Police Force and the Ontario Provincial Police. These raids are credited with preventing what could have been the equivalent to, to the 9-11 events. Um, we're going to kind of end on a sad note, unfortunately, because the RCMP has seen its fair share of tragedies like recently as well. On March 2nd, 2005, two people went to the farm of a man who had purchased a truck from them. However, he made no payments and the individuals were there to repossess the truck. The man unleashed two dogs on the individuals, so they retreated and contacted the RCMP in nearby Marathorpe, Alberta. While officers were on their way, the suspect drove off with the truck, shouting insults and the, at the individuals. Corporal James Martin received a warrant and a search began at 8.40 that evening. Among what was found was a police scanner capable of picking up dispatches from Marathorpe, Whitecourt, Barhead and Evansburg. Nearby, they found lists of officers' names, car numbers, and even cell numbers. They also found a night vision sc scope and several boxes of ammunition, which was a breach of the suspect's firearms probation as he was a, a former felon. A search of the nearby Quonset found several marijuana plants, and soon a whole fiasco began as an investigation. An RCMP team specializing in stolen vehicle searches was expected to arrive the next day, the next morning from RCMP um, RCMPA Division Headquarters in, or K Division Headquarters, excuse me, in Edmonton. And two officers remained at the farm overnight. After he fled, the suspect phoned an accomplice who provided the suspect with a Winchester rifle and ammo. The suspect then returned to the farm. Constables Anthony Gordon and Leo Johnson were still on scene providing crime scene security, waiting for the investigators to arrive. Gordon telephoned the detachment and requested another officer be sent. Constable Brock Myrell made his way to the scene, driven by Constable Peter Scheiman, or Scheiman, excuse me. While the investigators arrived, the four officers led them to the Quonset, its doors open. They weren't aware the suspect had managed to sneak back inside. Upon entering, two loud bangs were heard from the inside, followed by more sounds of gunshots. The investigators retreated and radioed an officer down. The suspect emerged from the Quonset with a semi-automatic rifle and fired two rounds at the investigators, who in turn returned fire. Two shots struck the suspect and he ran back inside. ERT, which is the emergency response team, was called in at 10.13 at a.m. and arrived just before noon. They used a robot to search the Quonset where they found the suspect and all four officers deceased. The suspect had shot himself upon returning to the Quonset. In the aftermath, the two accomplices were initially charged with murder, but they pled guilty to the lower charge of manslaughter. One was given 10 years, while the other was given 7 years. This event remains Canada's worst multiple officer killings in a single incident in modern Canadian history. Just over a year later, on July 7, 2006, near Spiritwood, Saskatchewan, Constables Robin Cameron and Mark Bordage 
responded to a home following a complaint. The owner fled immediately after seeing the officers and a, and a chase began. The suspect and officers exchanged gunfire during the pursuit. Both officers were mortally shot in the head through their windshields. The suspect fled on foot. After a 12-day manhunt, the suspect surrendered himself to the Spiritwood Detachment without incident. Cameron succumbed to her wounds on July 15th and Bordage died the, the day after that. The suspect attempted to argue he had blind fired out of panic, not intending to hurt the officers, and was acting in self-defense. He was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder and still remains in prison for the rest of his life. These two tragedies at Marathorpe and Spiritwood ended up dominating headlines like throughout 2005-2006. There's a uh, really nice memorial in Marathorpe. It's a it's beautiful. Uh, I have some family who lives up there, so I actually like they live like really close to that Quonset actually, so it was pretty crazy like just kind of driving around the town and seeing it and knowing exactly what it was because, and it, it was sort of strange actually seeing it in person too because I'd seen it on like news film like a million times and so it was like immediately recognizable. It was mm. like oh that, yeah that's that's the Quonset. That's the, I I when I was in journalism at Mount Royal, someone who was also in the journalism program, but like a year. Or I, I just left journalism and begun history. There was a woman uh, who was in journalism, and she was the suspect's niece. Mm. And she wrote a really great article, like being like the what it's like to be a family member of someone who's committed such a horrific yeah. thing, and it was really good. On June fourth, twenty fourteen, a man was spotted calmly walking through a residential neighborhood in Moncton, New Brunswick, wearing full camo clothing and carrying a semi-automatic rifle. Twelve officers arrived on the scene and established a perimeter. Constable Fabrice Govdan was engaged by the suspect, who fired three shots. Govdan retreated and radio shots fired. However, he was then hit twice in the torso and collapsed, having been killed instantly. Constable David Ross spotted the suspect emerge from the woods and sped towards him in his SUV, either to run over the suspect or simply getting close. It is unknown. During the, during the exchange of gunfire, Ross was struck and killed. Two more officers were wounded but able to escape, while the third was also wounded shortly after and assisted in escaping by another one of the wounded officers. Plainclothed officer Douglas Larch approached the scene and spotted the suspect. Both exchanged gunfire, and while running for cover, Larch was fatally shot in the neck. After this, the suspect fled into the woods. In total, three officers were killed, and two were left in critical condition, although these two were later survived. The area was completely shut down, and a manhunt began. On June 6, just after midnight, the suspect was taken into custody after he was spotted by Transport Canada aircraft and local residents. He gave up without a fight, at saying, I'm done. The suspect was given a life sentence and is currently living out the rest of his life in prison. In the aftermath of the incident, all officers are now required to undergo rifle training as part of regular training at Depot. Mm -hmm. Kind of surprised that wasn't already a thing. Yeah, it was interesting. Like it was, I, I think, an optional thing beforehand, but after this incident, it's required, which I think is the right thing to do. On October twenty second, twenty fourteen, just before ten a.m., a gunman opened fire on the sentries guarding the War Memorial in Ottawa, just down the street from Parliament Hill. Corporal Nathan Cirillo 
of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders was struck twice in the back. He later died at hospital from his injuries. Meanwhile, the gunmen fled the scene and onto the Parliament grounds. Two RCMP officers witnessed the man hijack a car and chased him onto the hill. On the hill, just at, in the main entrance to Peace Tower, Constable Semarin Sun grabbed the man's rifle and began shouting for people to get away and was shot in the foot during the struggle. The gunmen fled further inside, believe, believing, and it is believed he was searching for government officials. Sun simply limped outside and told a stunned CBC reporter, quote, I will survive. <laughs> I had, again, I had to include that because that's badass. It's a very matter of fact, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to survive. Okay. The gunman exchanged gunfire with Parliament security and was injured, causing him to retreat further inside into the hallway where the um, Parliament library is. Members of the RCMP and Ottawa police converged on Parliament Hill and searched for the suspect, who remained in the Library of Parliament hallway and hidden out of sight behind a pillar. Sergeant-at-Arms, former RCMP officer Kevin Vickers, armed himself with his handgun and joined the search for the gunman. His security team shouted to Vickers, the suspect, the suspect was located behind the pillar Vickers was near, and he positioned himself beside the same col um, behind the same column as the suspect. After a brief moment, Vickers dived around the column and fired up at the suspect, striking him several times and incapacitating him. The suspect died at the scene. Vickers continued his duty in helping secure the building and enforcing the lockdown. This was apparently the first time Vickers ever had to fire his weapon in his, even after his 29 years service as an RCMP officer and his service since 2006 as, mem as the Sergeant of Arms. Vickers was met with a standing ovation from MPs when he, pre when he presented the mace to the next House of Commons meeting after the shooting, which is a regular um, duty of the Sergeant of Arms. Basically, for those of you who don't know, the Sergeant of Arms, before every meeting, he walks this massive mace into the halls, followed by people, and then he places the mace down, and then that... Um, the, the, uh, well, when the mace is placed down, that means Parliament proceedings has begun. I'm going to talk more about Vickers because he's done some more badass. He did another badass thing because Vickers remained, retired as the Sergeant of Arms in January 2015 because he was appointed as ambassador to Ireland. Here, his badassery continued after he apprehended an Irish Republican protesting a ceremony to commemorate the British soldiers who died during the Easter Rising. The man had broken through the crowd and began shouting Republican slogans. Vickers, in return, subdued, rushed the man, subdued him, and brought him to a waiting Garda who took him into custody. You can't, I don't think many other ambassadors have done something that no. awesome. <laughs> Currently, Vickers is the leader of the provincial wing of the Liberal Party in his home province of New Brunswick. Excuse me. The final thing we're actually like officially going to talk about in this episode is on is actually very recent and we're still dealing with this aftermath on april 18th 2020 in port port nova scotia a man attacked his spouse after they returned from a party causing her to flee into the woods the man then gathered up weapons dressed as an rcmp officer and set his home excuse me and set his home on fire the suspect returned to the party and subsequently killed seven people there before leaving. Responding officers found 13 victims, seven who were killed by gunfire, and 
the rest were killed by either flames or smoke inhalation, and a further three homes had been had gone alight. Two witnesses stated they encountered a man driving what appeared to be a, an RCMP police vehicle who drove next to the car and began firing at them. One of the men was, was mildly injured, but they managed to escape. The suspect continued his spree driving up Highway 4, where he murdered two residents of a random home and their neighbor, who had, who had ran over to help. A few hours later, he shot and killed a woman who was simply out walking. The suspect then went to the home of people he knew, dressed as an RCMP officer and armed while banging on the door asking to be let in. The residents did not let him in and instead called the police. RCMP tweeted the suspect was impersonating an officer along with a photo of the vehicle. The suspect made two traffic stops while just with his, with his makeshift vehicle and killed the two drivers he stopped before fleeing the scene. Constable Chad Morrison was waiting off Route 2 in Shubenacadie, forgive me, waiting for fellow officer Heidi Stevenson. The suspect pulled beside him and opened fire, wounding Morrison. The suspect then drove off and collided head-on with Stevenson's vehicle. The two exchanged gunfire and sadly Stevenson was killed in the exchange. The suspect stole her sidearm, remaining ammo, and lit both cars on fire. He killed a bystander who had stopped in an attempt to assist and then fled the scene. He, he soon killed another person near, he knew who lived nearby, changed his clothes, and stole a, a woman's van before completely vanishing. At 11.26 a.m. the next day, the suspect stopped to refuel at Enfield when an officer who was also there refueling spotted and shot the suspect, killing him. In total, 22 people were killed, not including the suspect, because fuck him. This has become Canada's worst mass shooting ever. To this day, the motives remain unconfirmed and unclear, and an investigation remains. As of now, an investigation into the incident is still being conducted by the Serious Incident Response Team, and a review into the police response to the attack is also underway. The Nova Scotia government has received criticism for their failure to use the alert ready warning system and instead relay on social media to provide or instead rely on social media to provide updates. The incident has also has resulted in a massive reform of Canadian gun laws with up to 1500 semi-automatic model rifles becoming prohibited mm. almost like overnight. Mm. As of this episode, there are still calls for a public inquiry into the tragedy. But I do want to commend the RCMP. Like, the thing is, is like when you're in a developing situation like that, especially in like such a kind of a remote area, mm -hmm. things are going to get fucked up. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. We, did it. we, talked, we, we about talked about the RCMP. I guess just kind of talk about our thoughts. I mean, yeah, I, I uh, honestly the criticism towards the ICMP is fair, more than fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, well, I'll just say I just want to give a quick thing because like, you remember we went to the Black Lives Matter vigil and mm -hmm. there was a, there's some people standing behind me and one of them had a sign that said all cops are bastards, mm -hmm. including your relatives, and that kind of irked me. Yeah. Yeah, because like I don't agree with that statement, but like. Lindsay said this earlier, and I do agree with this statement. It's like, I'm not one of those people that just simply says, it's just a few bad apples. 
because the full statement is a few bad apples spoil the bunch. Yeah. So. I, yeah, I mean, I think that there are good people who are police, but I don't think that the police is necessarily good. No. And I don't have much more really to say other than I'm sort of, re it's made me rethink the role of policing because I mean, like, honestly, I've never had to phone the police for anything in my life. Yeah, the most I had to phone the police for is because someone abandoned their dog outside of my work. That's and it. is that really the job of the, should that even be the job of the police? Well, like, we, we, well, <laughs> the thing is, is I called animal control and they told yeah. me to call the police. Yeah, so I was I like, know, okay. but for sure but like that's a weird example but like there's there's a lot of things that we call the police for that we shouldn't be calling the police for like if there was money like when people talk about defunding the police we're not necessarily like the reason that they're saying that is because like the police are often the most the only presence in in places to deal with anything and it's like they're not equipped for that and they'll readily admit that yeah but like they're not equipped for that and so like and, and not trained for that. And then when you're putting, and then they're also then trained and equipped to be like soldiers now yeah. that you put them in like a heavily, they're heavily armed and in a situation where like they're not meant to be dealing with like, yeah, it's going to go poorly. Yeah. Obviously. Absolutely. And like in reality, like the police are disproportionately used to like they most of their time like is spent like arresting people for petty crimes and like usually racial, like arresting people who aren't white for those crimes. And like, there's a lot of like time spent doing that. And like what policing is like it's not rcmp specific this is like the police in general yeah exactly <laughs> like I'm, I'm just talking about policing in general is like you know i i was i've read a diff bunch of different like i have family members who are cops too but not in the rcmp but still and i've you know read uh i read this really i think it was a twitter thread actually and it was a guy who um went on a ride along with one of his high school friends who became a, a cop and he said that like you know, I know this person really, really well, but like when I was on that ride along, like that's not the person I know. Like they're not the same person. Yeah. And so like, yeah, they're a good dude outside of work. But like when they're a police officer, like they are trained to like, I am their prey. They are predators. They are not the, like you can't. So it's like, we're expecting because of how police training works now, it's like, they're not even really being trained to like work with the community. It's you're being trained to like arm yourself against the community and protect yourself against the community and like not work with the community. Mm -hmm. And so, and like, it's worse. It's not as bad. It's not the same everywhere, obviously. But like the fact that like patrol cars are only ever, people are, police only ever patrol in cars. So you're not on the street talking to people, things like that. And like, obviously, yeah. and it's different too with the RC, the RCMP is different in some cases because like it's very rural and very spread out. It's a lot different, but like in terms of cities, like yeah, city like police have these problems be, and in particular because it's like you're just driving around and it's and it's an issue in rural places too you can't really get to know the community if your area of community is fucking like 200 kilometers and you're constantly just driving around yeah and just reacting to crises you're yeah, not trying to exactly. work with anybody but like i don't know i've seen the rcmp in this town where i live grow up like they definitely disproportionately treat first nations people like shit and like they have their own rcmp detachment and it's not always good out there yeah. like and like i witnessed like in comparison, I like where I live in Chestermere, the RCMP only covers Chestermere. Yeah, that's it. Like a Strath little Strathmore, like, Strathmore RCMP essentially cover from like the edge of Chestermere all the way to Gleeshan to yeah. the reserve, and then the reserve has their own like RCMP detachment in Gleeshan, but like they're basically related. Yeah, but it's like in Chestermere, like <laughs> they just they're really serious about speeding in Chestermere because that's all they do. <laughs> in in reality, Chestermere High School is under the jurisdiction of. The Strathmore RCMP. No, that's what's it's never like, really made that's sense. That's what 
makes me like that makes me laugh. But also, um, I think that the RCMP are ill-suited to municipal policing because, in most cases, because like they they weren't built for that. They were never built for that. Like we just talked about what they were built for, and yeah. they were never built for community policing. So like it's kind of ridiculous to expect them to com- to com- police the community. Yeah. The only reason that they are the community police in most cases is because policing is expensive, hmm. and the RCMP is federally funded. One uh, like one thing I like I love I I mean there's a lot of things I love about my dad but one thing in particular that I'm thinking of is that when something kind of like he'll ask my opinion on like certain matters like that are coming up and like um, he'll talk to my brother about stuff going on like especially with the RCMP mm-hmm. right now um, I should mention right now like of course my brother is not happy with uh, like he he's sad he's I, I guess the most I'll say is he's saddened by the incidents um, of the, like these recent incidents with the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spoke to him the day and, and like it's interesting. I spoke to him the day that the Nova Scotia shooting happened and he was and like to hear how hurt and angry he was. It makes sense because that kid's close to home. And like these tragedies, like make like I do have a fair bit of I know my brother will be all right, but I do have a fair bit of concern for him because being a police officer in any case can be it can be a rough job, mm-hmm. it can be a dangerous job, and I think particular the RCMP is more dangerous. But I think like when when my dad asked me like what what's your opinion I and I think what like and I'll just keep this brief, but. I think a lot of it boils down to uh, training um, because there's like the length of training for any police department is not that long. Yeah, but then who's doing the training? Well, we that's not, uh, not <laughs> yet, but I'm saying like that's what we need to figure out is how can we get to that like stage where we can figure out how to do this. I'm not just like, but I'm, I do believe that um, a, more training needs to be done for these officers because i do feel that in a, a lot of like in the certain cases like in specific like in a quite a few cases that it there's the situation that is on the office it's unfair to the officer just because they they're not trained for to deal with like certain um situations i mean i'm not saying that with every incident there they've made mistakes obviously like horrible like done pretty bad things but i'm saying in a lot of cases like there's quite a few cases out there that i'm just like i'm not going to name any specifics because i don't have any but yeah that's that's kind of where i'm at and i want to end with this story my brother uh this is recent he got a call they, they got a call to the detachment i guess there were some like rowdy kids from what I from what I understand, it was one of those situations where the neighbors called on some rowdy kids, like they were being rowdy, quote unquote, but they were just you know being kids playing. Mm-hmm. I believe it was hockey, mm-hmm. street hockey. So my brother's like, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go check it out and see. Like he was just expecting to go and say, hey guys, what's going on, and like talk to him for a bit and be like, okay, bye. Um, he gets there and it and he used to be the resource officer for the high school. And these were kids that he knew, like he recognized them. And so he gets out of the car. They all ran up and gave him a hug, which is really kind of, it's kind of sweet. 
there's a lot of good stories. There's you can tell like an infinite number of stories about people doing nice like cops doing nice things. Yeah. Like, and I'm like, I'm not obviously saying, well, <laughs> this counteracts everything. I'm just yeah. <laughs> more, I'm just, I want to be fair, especially to my brother, because I respect my brother. Absolutely. And, I, and like, I want, I don't want people to not, like, either be afraid of him or hate him just no. because of his occupation. Absolutely. I don't think, well, people are always going to be afraid of him for his occupation, especially non-white people. And you can never tell them not to be. Yeah. <laughs> he could be the nicest human on the planet and they're inherently going to be scared when they pull him and he pulls them over. Yeah. Like, that's the way it is. Yeah, no, I understand that. <laughs> but I, I just want people to know, hey. I, I definitely think we've been more than fair in this episode, so. Yeah, so I'm like. to defend anyone who yeah. says we're not at this point. I'm, I have a massive migraine and I'd like to wrap this up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to forego the fact of the day, like our facts of the day, because it's getting, getting long. Next episode, we're talking about uh, a, ra- a another controversial police matter, but this time with the FBI, called Co- Cointropol. We will get into that, but basically it tried to ruin a lot of lives of people in the civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King. And uh, the way that this whole operation was discovered is incredible and brave. But I'll leave it at that, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. We hope you all had a great Canada Day. Or mm-hmm. Keep washing your hands. Yeah, keeping distance. Stay safe. Wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much. Kevin says Rar. This is Jonah. Lindsay. And we're leaving you with Indian Love Call. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.